The following podcast may contain movie spoilers, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. Sensitive listeners should plug their ears with their fingers. In three, two, one. Yes. <laughs> Rolling sound, quiet. Speak. Good world. What you watching? Be specific. You're tuning in for what is it? One, two, three, the third episode of Subgenre Season 3, Time Twisters. We're talking about movies who ignore the timeline the rest of us have to live by and make their own reality be damned. As always, I'm your host, Josh Dassel, and today we're going 23 years into the past. I said 23 to meet up with a film about a murderer, a man who can't make memories, and one of the coolest sets of tattoos ever put on celluloid. It stars Guy Pearce, Carrie Ann Moss, and Joey Pants Pantoliano, and was directed by the modern master of the temporal bend, Christopher Nolan. Dig out your Polaroid camera and start making notes, folks. This is Memento. And here with me in Studio K is a longtime buddy of mine. He's a return guest host, and he's a guy who writes stories for a living. It's playwright Alan Mall. Hey, Alan, welcome to Subgenre. Josh, I am thrilled to be back on the third episode of the third season, and the third time that you've had me in this wonderfully unventilated studio. <laughs> it's the least <laughs> ventilated studio I've ever sat in. You're right. Yeah. Things get a little hot in here and in all kinds of ways you can imagine. And you, you've been in here sweating to death for, like you said, two previous episodes, which would have been in our first season, our fifth episode, you covered U571 with mm, me. Deep dive into one of my favorite submarine flicks. Say that one again. <laughs> a deep dive into one of my favorite submarine flicks. That's what I thought you meant. That's what I said. And in season two, episode Five, uh, you were back to talk about the great train robbery from the 70s. We had Sean Connery. We had Donald Sutherland's lack of British dialect. Mm. We had everything we wanted in that movie. It was great. Everything we wanted and a few things we didn't. And a few things we did not. <laughs> did not. So as I mentioned in the opening, this is, of course, season three. We are covering the subgenre of what we've been calling time twisters here, which are movies that just sort of mess with the timeline in one form or another. That can mean time travel movies. That can mean movies about memory. It can mean other things like that. So I want to chat really quickly and just sort of set up why we feel like Memento fits into a season like this. Oh, it's great. The conceit of the movie is like, OK, it's a movie that that starts at the at the ending and then goes back to mm-hmm. the beginning. You get some flashbacks in there, but that's the main thing is like you, you begin at the end of the story and you're going back to the beginning. And so you might think, how could that be suspenseful? How could that be interesting? And what makes it work is the protagonist has an inability to create new memories because he's got some damage to his brain. And so the great thing about that start at the end, go to the beginning conceit is that it puts you in his head the whole time. You don't know what his relationship is with these people. It's like we're meeting them for the first time just like he is, but they already have a history that only they know about. I don't know why I was dumb enough to pick this as a film for us to cover this season because this thing is so damn complicated. I have no idea how we're going to cover it. A Christopher Nolan movie has way too much going on. <laughs> Josh. Yeah, yeah. And, and we'll, we're going to talk a lot about Christopher Nolan, but generally... 
Nolan's movies are just inscrutable to begin with. We're taking what was his first one before he sort of worked the kinks out, maybe, and are trying to cover that. And we're covering one, like you said, that is taking us, yes, from backwards to forwards or, or from, from end to beginning, but not in a straight line either. Mm-hmm. So I have no idea how we're going to cover this, but we're going to do our best and see if we can get through this in a way that makes sense to everybody. I'll ask this before we get started. I'll give you my answer first. Memento came out in 2000, mm-hmm. released widely in, in 01. I have not honestly seen this movie since it came out. Oh. This was my first time rewatching it since the early 2000s. And so I kind of got this, you know, relatively fresh perspective. I remembered a few things about it, but didn't remember a lot of everything. And so it was exciting for me to do that. And we can talk about, you know, the goods and the bads here. But have you seen this movie recently? Like, or is this something that you watch on a daily basis? Oh, definitely not on a daily basis, though. If you'd asked me back when I was in college or grad school, this was one of the films that we often had on in the background when we were doing different things. Like, oh, you know, we need to watch a movie tonight. Oh, let's watch Memento again and things. Because, you know, pre-streaming days, you only had so many DVDs on the shelf. And so, like, this was a great one because there's a it's thick and complicated enough that you notice something new every time. But that was back in, like, 2006 or so was probably the last time in my life that I was doing that. So I don't think I've seen this in 15 years. Well, good. So we're both coming to it with a relatively uh, fresh perspective on things, which is perfect. This was one of those movies back around that point, like you said, that not necessarily was on in the background for me, but it was one of those movies that was in the zeitgeist. It was the thing that if you were a film student, especially if you were a really nerdy film student, which are, is there any other kind, but um, (laughs) this is what you talked about. It was part of the secret language because it wasn't like a super wide release movie in the beginning. And so if you knew about it, that made you really special. And that's kind of what I associate with it. Well, and there's something to love about this movie, no matter what kind of film production aspect you're interested in. Like, the cinematography is great. The script is fantastic. It's got some wonderful acting performances from these actors. You know, because a lot of these folks, like, they were coming off, like, really big productions. Like, The Matrix had just come out, and it reunited Carrie Ann Moss and Joe Pantoliano. Like, he was on The Sopranos. Like, you know, Guy Pierce. this was, like, the first time I had seen him on something. But you could tell that, like, the script was what drew a lot of these actors in, was that they had a lot of meaty like character stuff they could mess around with and the concept was so cool. Well, let's back up and let's go to kind of setting the scene for this film for everybody. If you sure, if you sure. haven't seen if you haven't seen this film, don't listen to this podcast. Like we're going to spoil everything and this is a movie you do not want to be spoiled or if you only saw it 15 years ago or whatever like me, go see it again before you listen to this, please. Um, but like we mentioned, this thing came out in 2000 officially. I think it premiered at Venice at the film festival in Venice in 2000 mm-hmm. and then got released in was it 01? Originally released in the U.S. in only 11 theaters. Yeah, it was like March. it was like Blair Witch. It, it came out in just like a couple of theaters. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, like once things began to pick up more, like it got a lot wider release. But uh, yeah, New Market, the company that also would produce Cruel Intentions, The Mexican, and no one's owned The Prestige in 2006. So uh, they were the, the production company on it. And also the distributor, I think, with mm-hmm. New Market was. And I think it was after Nolan had pitched the movie, or I'd actually shown the movie at uh, Venice, and everybody passed on it because they're like, I don't know what the hell we do with this. Even Miramax passed on it. Miramax would distribute everything. Yeah, and so the movie that premiered in only 11 theaters, Memento suddenly expanded to 500 by you know week 11. Yeah. So three months in, people were all like, oh, you have to see this. Like, And that was my memory of this movie, it was my dad went and saw it, and I think like my little sister had a freak out, so he had to leave in the middle of the movie, but he immediately came back and said, Alan, we have to go see this movie. So he was t- explaining the concept to me. So word of mouth, I think, did a lot 
lot to get this one a lot more popular. But back to facts, filmed all around L.A., much a lot of it near Burbank. It was shot in only 25 days. Pretty so good. It's, it's got a very like indie film kind of tight scope to it and everything. And I think originally it was supposed to be in Quebec or the screen. The, either yeah, the original script was yeah Montreal. Know. It's just like just like L.A. You <laughs> it's know? just like L.A. <laughs> it's exactly where a neo noir film takes place is yeah. in Quebec. So uh, yeah, and then you know tight budget, only about nine million dollars, but yeah. gross to date more than forty million worldwide. Decent, so, you know, made their money back. Ended up before it even went to DVD. And it's this is one of my favorite facts about this. It's based on the short story Memento Mori by um, Jonathan Nolan, who was Christopher Nolan's brother, which was published in. 2001. So his brother was actively working on the story, told Christopher Nolan about it. And then before the story was finished, the movie was scripted, shot, and uh, put in front of an audience. So this is probably the only example I could ever think of of a, uh, a fiction writer being able to see something come to life before he actually finished it. Right, right. And it wasn't it they were in a car ride or something going across country where they're chatting this thing out. And by the time they get to the other side, they figured the whole the whole story out. Hey, it's good to have brothers. It's, it is. <laughs> it is. And I think, too, the title of that short story, The Memento Mori, is it's Latin for Remember You Must Die, I think, is, if I remember my X-Files titles right. Oh, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and like, you know, being the classical studies nerd that I am, it was the one whenever you got a triumph in ancient Rome, it was the job of some, like, enslaved person to follow behind you and keep repeating this to you while the rest of Rome was uh, treating you like a god and celebrating you. He would just go around and whisper in your ear, Memento Mori, Memento Mori, <laughs> because the idea was that you were like, you know, you were going to die. You were not a god. You are but a man. So he's like bizarro flavor flave. He's like the yeah. opposite of a hype man. Yeah, bizarro flavor flave. I think I will write my old classical studies teacher <laughs> and she will t- agree 100%. This sucker was nominated for some awards. A lot of them it won, but the ones that it didn't were the two Academy Awards it was nominated for, which I think were screen uh, original screenplay and best editing. 2000 and 2001, that era was uh, rife with good films. So yep. it lost best original screenplay to Gosford Park. Another sure. Excellent murder story in its own right, and uh, best editing lost to Black Hawk Down. I you get know, it. A war flick, man. It's tough. Like, you know, and Ridley Scott and his team knew what they were doing on that one. Yeah, and wasn't it uh, Gosford Park was Julian Fellows? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Now, that's, if you're going to lose to somebody, that's okay. <laughs> it's fine. Memento has been called one of the most realistic and accurate depictions of uh, anterograde amnesia, which is the inability to create new memories after the event that caused the amnesia in the first place. This is like they consider this one of the most realistic ones ever put on film. I'm glad that there's a name for whatever this condition is, the, the anterior grade amnesia, just because, I don't know, it's just kind of neat to know that it's real. Yeah, it, this is a legitimate concept and something that really could happen to someone. So I would never want it to happen to me or anybody I cared about. But yeah, legit phenomenon. Legit phenomenon. Directed, of course, like you said, by Christopher Nolan, who has gone on from this to basically own the world in terms of film, you know, doing things like, of course, The Dark Knight and Interstellar and Inception and most recently, what, Tenet and Oppenheimer's coming. So, yeah, are you a Nolan fan? Yes. Yeah. There was a point in my life where I would see pretty much everything that this, that had this guy's name attached to it, and then I got busier. And also, I mean, movies like Interstellar and Tenet were not as well executed and perfect <laughs> as a lot of his other movies have been. But So I've seen, I have not seen everything Nolan, so we're going to try not to spoil anything, but I'll tell you, the ones I have not seen Tenant, I have not seen yet. Of course, Oppenheimer, because it's not out at this point, I think, in, in release for everybody to see. You live in the present, not the future. I live in the present, not the future, although we can't be certain of that. <clears throat> Let's find out. And I'm trying to think if there's one other Nolan. Oh, one of his really early ones um, I haven't seen as well. Following? Following. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Following is, is is great because, like, it'll take you back to being a film student and, like, mm. when you had no money and you were just, like, guerrilla shooting a lot of things because you just had a really good script that you knew was going to be great. So, yeah, Following's a blast. It's been, a, again, it's been 20 years since I've seen it, but highly recommended. Yeah, Guy Pierce stars in this thing. Well, actually, even before Guy Pierce, the whole thing is produced by this producing team of the Todds, which I didn't know before I started researching this, honestly, but it's Jennifer Todd and Suzanne Todd. I have no idea if they're related. I'm assuming they are. That sounds right. But between them have done some pretty good stuff. Like Jennifer's resume is a little thinner. It's, you know, across the universe, boiler room, things like that. But Mm -hmm. then... You get into Suzanne Todd, and she's doing basically every uh, action-y thing around. Die Hard 2, Hudson Hawk. I mean, some great producing partners, for sure. Very good producing partners. And then we get into the stars, of course. Yes. Guy Pierce, whom I learned was, uh, you know, it's like born in England, but like grew up in Australia. So my wife and I had a bit of an argument about like, no, he's Australian. And she goes, well, it says here on IMDb that he's English. (laughs) So we looked it up. I'm like, he effectively grew up in Australia. So I think Australia will claim him. Mm -hmm. But yeah, his breakout role, I think, came a few years earlier on L.A. Confidential, but you also would not know him from The Hurt Locker and countless other films. I think most recently he was on uh, Mayor of Easttown with uh, Kate Winslet. Well, I was going to ask, whatever happened to Guy Pierce? Because at least on my radar, he kind of fell off. Like, I know he's doing stuff. He's working. He's doing great stuff. But he was the guy there for, I mean, no pun intended, but he was the guy there for a while. Yeah, it's another one of those ones where, like, I think I asked myself the same question, started combing through IMDb, and I'm like, yeah, he's clearly been working, getting, like, you know, leading parts. It's just in these films and TV shows that I've not no one's been talking right. about to me so I missed them Carrie Ann Moss you said was the co-star yes yes and most most famous from the uh, Matrix movies and everything else but you've also seen her on Jessica Jones if you're a Marvel fan mm-hmm. she was uh, you know played the lawyer on that one and uh, Joey Pants Joey Pantoliano I from, love Joey Pants yes from The Sopranos from The Fugitive and I first saw him on uh, The Matrix when he played uh, sure. Cypher I think the, one of the guy that ends up trying to betray them in the first movie the representation from The Matrix in this movie is strong Yes. So, and I think it was Carrie Ann Moss actually suggested Joey Pants to play Teddy after they decided Dennis Leary couldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Or should he do it? I'm not sure. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Well, what might have been? (laughs) (laughs) You have memory loss, mother. Um, uh, Yes, uh, the shooting. You talked about the shooting on this. Wally Pfister ended up being the DP on this. I think after the original DP turned it down because he didn't understand the script. And Wally Pfister, who would go on to shoot things like The Italian Job and Moneyball, and then essentially become Nolan's go-to shooter for the rest of it, stepped in and was like, yeah, I don't understand it either, but I'm going to take the job. Yeah, and just imagine like how good it would be to like break out with Christopher Nolan at the same time and become the DP that he was always like, I'm making a little film called Inception. Do you think you'd be interested? <laughs> <laughs> Dude's like, yeah, what are you doing for the next three years yeah. while I make this movie? Indeed, indeed. Uh-huh. Yeah, and edited by uh, Dottie Dorn, who you might know from Insomnia, Fury, and uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League. Yeah, she'd go on to is she he Doty? Uh, I have sure, man. I have no idea. Yeah, like you said, we'd go on to do more Nolan. We'd go on to do um, Insomnia and, and other things as well. But yeah, he has a team. Music was a uh, David Julian who uh, did The Descent and also The Prestige with sure. Christopher Nolan. So he, look, look at Christopher Nolan just keeping the family together uh-huh. after this movie. And makeup by Scott uh, H. Edo, who's uh, you know also flexing his makeup muscles on the Walking Dead series. A little movie called Die Hard and Rocky Balboa. Never heard of him. Yeah, yeah, I know. Very obscure flicks. The you have to look him up. Yeah, back. that dude has done a lot of makeup. He's he's supervised makeup, by, like you said, on a lot of big films like that. But just doing makeup, he's been on 
countless films. His resume is long. Mm -hmm. So, you know, good on him. We'll kind of cap this section off a little bit with uh, what I've been trying to do in this season and I think the end of the last two, which is there are certain people in the credits at the end of a film who never get the recognition that all these other people get. And so I try to pluck somebody out of obscurity and give them a little shout out. And for this one, I want to, just because of the continuity stuff and and how it plays into the plot itself, I want to give a shout out to the set costumer whose name is Annie, I'm going to try this, Annie Lauperadonchai. So Annie was the costumer on this film, had to keep track of, you know, this bloodstain is here and this is wrinkled this and now it's not wrinkled and keeping track of time as well as costume. Um, Her only films that she did before Memento really was The Secret Life of Girls. All right. And Wishmaster 2, which, okay, take what you can get, Annie, I know. But now has gone on after having done those two and then into Memento, has catapulted herself into being what looks like the personal costumer on a lot of movies consistently for people like Jennifer Aniston. A lot of work for Reese Witherspoon and Charlize Theron and and other people like that. So uh, she's doing all right for herself. Good for Annie. Good for Annie. Good job, Annie. Yeah, I mean, Memento, it's clear, like, you, you got some stars that had already broken out, but what I love about this movie is it clearly helped launch the careers for a lot of people that are now household names or at least ones that you'd be like, oh, I love that movie and I love that movie and I love that movie. I was never that fortunate to be on the film that would launch me into the stratosphere with Christopher Nolan. We're on subgenre season three, Josh. (laughs) It's true. I've hit the pinnacle of my success. (laughs) This is it. Well, that's it. That's the film we're going to cover today. It's Memento. It's by Christopher Nolan. And we're going to try to break it apart. You ready to try this? Let's dive in. All right. Let's get to our feature presentation. Of course, our feature presentation today is Memento from 2000. Memento has, as every good independent film did in the late 90s and the early 2000s, and really just any good film period, has a both impactful and mysterious beginning. Yes. Opening shot of a man holding a Polaroid and taking a picture of a man who has been shot in the head. Yeah. And the thing that quickly keeps you in that this movie will not be like other films is he's shaking the Polaroid picture, but you're watching it undevelop. So it begins clear and begins to fade out as though the Polaroid is becoming harder to see, not easier to see. And for the time, you see maybe a lot of things played in reverse that work maybe prior to that a bit because you had that Twin Peaks episode where everything plays in reverse, you know, things like that. But seeing this in a feature film as the opening to a feature film where everything is moving backwards really, really threw me off at the time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so he's got somebody, he's got a Polaroid, somebody's been shot in the head, the bullets are flying back into the gun, you yes. know. We don't know who this guy is, but what we'll find out soon that his name is Leonard and he's played by Guy Pierce. He has a cut on his face that we don't understand why he has. Some scratches on a cheek, yeah. Yeah, doesn't look like he's in great shape. Looks a little tired, looks a little little haggard. And the dead man, I'm going to call him the dead man because that's how we see him when he starts. The dead man at some point in this reverse turns himself around to reveal himself and screams. And the person that turns himself around to reveal himself, we're going to probably recognize very early and we'll find out his name later, but it's Joey Pants. Indeed. Yeah. So you get a murder in the first 30 seconds of the movie. It's So it's like it's, it sets you up right away with like, you know, oh, thrilling. I don't know what's going on. I'm immediately my attention seized. And the one thing we have to mention, which we typically don't have to mention with a lot of movies, is this is a part of the movie that's in color. 
Mm-hmm. The movie is going to very quickly in just a moment swap out to black and white and continue to make that swap all the way through. Yeah, which I mean, in addition to messing with your perception, immediately gets you to, like the protagonist, question like, when did this happen? At what point in the timeline of the narrative did this all take place? And, uh, you know, if you guessed that the thing in black and white happened a bit before the things that happened in color, you would be right. That's our uh, our clue that we are both going back in time, but also the black and white tends to match itself up with Leonard in this motel room that we're going to establish that he's going to spend a lot of time in in this film, really giving information. And that information is coming in the form of a voiceover. It's coming in the form of him talking on the telephone sometimes. Mm-hmm. But it's always information that we as an audience are needing to understand context. That's sort of the context piece, right? Indeed, indeed. Yeah, like this is the, uh, you know, narration voiceover kind of thing, but not done primarily through voiceover. Like we're getting him on the phone with someone that we don't identify. So it seemed to, he's in the motel room. He's listening to a voice on the phone while he's explaining something. He has the key, but he doesn't know how long he's been in this motel room. So that's our first clue that our, our guy has some missing time, mm-hmm. if you will. Yes, right? yes, indeed. We go back to color. I'll try to let us know when we're in black and white and color, but we get back to color just in time for Leonard to be able to look at the first of, I guess we've seen one before, but look at a Polaroid photo. Polaroid photos are going to play a big part in this film in terms of Leonard organizing and being able to understand what has come before. That's his memory system. Mm-hmm. Because as we said, he can't make memories. In this scene, like, you know, we see Leonard with the photo of the dead man. So immediately we know, okay, this had to take place before he was shot in the head. The photo's labeled Teddy. He's got a weird, quirky smile on there, but it's Joe Pantoliano. So he's showing this picture to a desk clerk at the motel. He offers him $40 to get information about who this guy is. But before the clerk could agree to it, Teddy arrives to greet him. The desk clerk, by the way, who we'll find out is named Bert, played by an actor named Mark Boone Jr., who has the exact right look that you want for a guy sort of sitting behind a desk at a shady motel. You've seen him in a few other things. He plays bit parts here and there, slightly and larger than no bit parts. A lot of Nolan movies, Batman stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think his best payday probably came when he got, it was a recurring role on Sons of Anarchy, which Uh is, again, biker. A hundred percent looks like a biker. Um, But yeah, you're right. Teddy shows up outside, you know, flings the door open and Teddy knows Leonard. Yes. Calls him by name. So immediately we know these two have a history, even if Leonard, like us, has no idea what that history is. Leonard does uh, a line that we'll hear him say a lot. Like, you know, I have this condition. Have I told you about it? And Teddy responds with, only every time I see you, do you tell me about that? And, (laughs) And Leonard. Leonard's going to get this line a lot. Leonard tells everybody he has a condition. Leonard tells everybody a few things repeatedly, and we find out that this is the one that he does the most. So Teddy is walking Leonard outside. They're going somewhere. We don't know where. Mm -hmm. Walks him to a car, which Leonard knows is not his car because of the Polaroids that he's holding in his hand. Teddy plays it off, I think, as a joke or something, but that Teddy was taking him to the wrong place and Leonard was able to stop it. So Leonard tries to roll up the window to the car that they do get into after Teddy invites him to. The glass is broken. Huh. How did that happen? Which is a jag? Yes. Yeah. A very nice Jaguar, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's busted, right? The window's busted. It's been beat up. We don't know why, but there seems to have been something that's happened that we may become privy to later. Yeah, so Leonard says he has a lead on a place he wants to investigate. Teddy immediately, he doesn't know why he wants to go there, but Teddy immediately is like, ah, oh, why do you want to go to that spot? He's trying to talk him out of it, but Leonard's insistent. They arrive at this rundown building, and there's a truck out front. Teddy's like, oh, it's been there for years. Like, why do we even want to go to this place? And Leonard starts saying, like, oh, no, no, look, he's consulting his photos and he he sees something in the photo of Teddy. There's two things I think he notices when they pull up at this building. And one of them is that truck you mentioned that's sitting out front. 
He peeks in the cab and there are bullets sitting on the seat. So whatever has taken place with this truck, there's some gun something attached to it. He also takes out Teddy's photo, which we've seen him show before. But is it I think it's on the back of Teddy's photo has been written the words, don't believe his lies. Mm -hmm. And then immediately below don't believe his lies, we see he is the one. Kill him. Yeah, right. (laughs) Which immediately then puts us into, as an audience, not trusting Teddy. That sets Teddy up as an antagonist, not a friend, potentially. Yes. yes. But also is one of the first instances of the big mysteries that are going to need to be unraveled. So who wrote that on the back of the photo? Why is it written there? And why do we want why do we not want to believe Teddy? And why do we want to kill him? Yeah. And so Leonard, completely trusting this uh, writing on the back of the photo, gets Teddy inside the building, hits him over the head, tells him to that he's going to pay for what he did and that he needs to beg forgiveness of Leonard's wife before he meets his end. And Teddy responds with Leonard doesn't have any idea who he is. He only knows what he read off a picture, which is accurate. Right. Teddy knows about the photos. Teddy says, like, look, let's go down to the basement and I'll show you the answers that you're looking for. But before they can do so, Teddy screams, tries to get away, and Leonard decides to pull the trigger. Which is that moment that we opened the film with that we saw playing in reverse, now playing in forward motion. Yeah. So Teddy's dead. Maybe. Yeah. Oh, and, the, and the thing about this is, is that, like, since you know there is re- there is revenge involved, like, beg forgiveness for what you did, it's like, because the audience is in Leonard's point of view, you're like, oh, well, he got him. Like, you know, it's like he was the one and he killed him. And as we go back in time to the moment before this, all you can think is, like, it has led to the conclusion Leonard wanted he got his revenge. And it's a great example, that moment, of how Nolan and how the editor work together to structure the film so that they cut out of these scenes at exactly the right moment to create the next question that the audience wants to have answered. So in this instance, we see Teddy is the one. Teddy says, you don't know the whole deal and tries to turn and get shot. And the question left in the audience's mind is, well, beg forgiveness for what? What happened to his wife? Which is what we're going to try to answer. So now, next scene, we're back in the motel room and Leonard is checking the drawers and he finds a tattoo on his hand as he tries to wipe this ink off that says, remember Sammy Jankus. Okay, so Leonard's on the phone again. So he says, like, Sammy had the same problem. Leonard has memory, but he has no system to help him. He says, you need a system to make it work. And so we see that Leonard has a note that reads shave (laughs) taped to his leg. (laughs) It's like a literally handwritten note marked shave that's scotch taped to his leg. On the the spot and everything. And uh, he writes the line about Teddy, the thing about the don't trust it. It's not the don't trust his lies. It's the he is the one kill him. Mm -hmm. Right. Don't trust his lies is already on the photo, I think. And he writes the kill him line on the back of the photo, which we know he will look at later. Yes. So we're stepping back that far. Mm-hmm. We don't know who he's on the phone to. Yes. And he, yeah, he, he keeps talking. I don't know that he does either because like you said, he's got memory problems, but yes. we certainly don't. Cut away. Leonard is going to the front desk, talk to Bert, Mark Boone Jr. So Leonard does not remember him, of course, and asks the usual questions. And Bert knows who he is. Like, oh, hey, how you doing, Leonard? <laughs> yeah. And Leonard has asked for his calls to be held. We learned that. We learned that Leonard likes to look people in the eye. That's why he had his calls held. Bert knows all of this. Bert has heard this a thousand times. And Bert does the favor for the audience of asking Leonard, what is the last thing that you remember before all of this went down? Mm -hmm. And Leonard says it's his wife. Says his condition just feels like waking up constantly. Like, you know, it's like years ago, where am I? What's going on? And then Bert thinks that, oh, it sounds like that would suck not being able to keep going. Bert says once he finds out that Leonard, you know, can only remember his wife and can't make new memories, Bert voices the, well, that's got to suck. You get on a roll for something and then you can't keep on the roll because you won't remember that you're on it, which is 
an offhanded comment by Bert at the time, but is going to come to mean something later. Indeed, indeed. And then immediately Bert's like, oh, by the way, don't forget to pay your bill, Leonard. And so like he pays like the $40 that he owes for the room. Yep. And Leonard does the thing he did earlier, which is, hey, here's a photo of this guy named Teddy. Do you know this guy? And Bert's like, yep, that's the dude that's coming to the door right, right now, now for you. Right. And then he pops in and Teddy's here just like before. So we realize we're watching the beginning of the moment that had happened a few minutes previously on the film. And Leonard makes sure to tell Bert, because he's read the back of his poll that Teddy is not his friend. Mm -hmm. Let me know when Teddy gets here. And of course, Teddy's already there. Okay, that was in color. Yep. We're swapping back to the black and white again. So in the motel room. In the motel room. Back to, you know, just slightly maybe where, before where we were previously because we see the shaved note that is on Leonard's leg that he had before. This time, instead of continuing to talk on the phone, and maybe this is right after that phone call, Leonard goes to the bathroom to shave yep. because he's told himself to. Yeah. Finds another note, a, a bag labeled shave left thigh. Very specific. Yep. Yep. And so now we get a little bit of voiceover. Leonard's talking about the system that he uses to get through things with his notes, with his pictures. He says, you have to be careful because people could easily take advantage of you when you mm-hmm. have a condition like he does. So if you have vital information, why not write it on your body with a tattoo? Because that's just a permanent way of keeping a note. Which he does. We don't see entirely, but we do have seen, at least on his hand, that he has tattooed Remember Sammy Jenkins, mm-hmm. right? We know that he's doing notes like that. The phone rings in the other room, but we don't get to hang out because this, we're going to jump somewhere else in time now. Leonard's been in a bathroom in his hotel. We go to another bathroom. He's washing his hands. The Sammy Jenkins tattoo is on his hands. And we realize pretty shortly that he is not at the hotel. He is at a restaurant mm-hmm. and is exiting the bathroom there. And as soon as he exits, the server gives him back a folder and a motel key that he left at the table. It's like, oh, yeah, you left this here, sir. And Leonard's like, you know, ask for directions to a spot on the back of the photo that he receives from the server. And right before I think he came out of that bathroom, he has pulled up one sleeve, the maybe the Sammy Jenkins hand has mm-hmm. pulled it up and has noticed that there is a big tattoo in kind of like typewriter font that just says the facts. Mm-hmm. And so we are slowly revealing what is tattooed on him in each of these little little pieces, which I love. Yeah. You have all of the backstory that you need written on the body of the protagonist, but he doesn't reveal all of it right away because, of course, he doesn't remember these tattoos being put on him. He just right. knew, knows they were important enough facts that they're worth like permanently inking onto his body. Uh-huh. And let's talk about those tattoos for a second. The font choices and just the general stuff. I love those tattoos. I want to know if somewhere in the world there is somebody with the full body replication of oh, there had all to, of his tattoos. Yeah, there had to have been some Halloween costumes in like 2001 <laughs> or two that definitely he used like memento tattoo sleeves as part of the whole thing. I'm just going to do that and no one is going to understand it like <laughs> anymore. No, only elderly people are going to go, oh yeah, I remember that movie. Ah, that flick. Um, so yeah, he's, he's leaving the Mexican restaurant. He's heading for someplace, a location that was on the photo. It turns out to be the discount in the motel where he is currently staying. Goes to his room. We get to see a bit more of the, the room this time and notice that on the wall there is this giant sort of like serial killer map, yeah, right? Yeah. Where he is posting photos. The investigation map. He's got all the photos of like, you know, key locations and people in there so he does so he can see it all at once in front of him. And he adds one for the motel yep. so we can know because he knows 
this will be a significant place for him. He has another one for Natalie, a woman that we have not met yet. Right. One for the car that he's driving, another one for Teddy. And then from the envelope that he got from the server, he sees one that says, for Leonard, from Natalie. And he pulls out a photocopy of Teddy's driver's license, which names him actually John Edward Gamble. We've known Teddy all of about, I don't know, 15 minutes in this film as Teddy. And all of a sudden, he's not Teddy. He's this other person, John Edward Gamble, at least according to this information that is in the envelope, which feels like a big revelation for Leonard Mm -hmm. and for us. And maybe it is. But at this point, we don't know why. Yes. And we don't know who it's from. And if that person who is giving it to him, what the motivation for giving it to him is. We have no idea about this at this point, except her name is Natalie. Precisely. Yeah. But the fact that it's a driver's license suggests like, okay, this is his legal name. Like, you know, so whoever Teddy is, that's an alias that he's been using. That's not like, you know, the guy's real name. So immediately. Which then makes sense because that is the moment where then he turns over Teddy's Polaroid and writes the words, don't believe his lies. Or he finds the line there. He writes is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. So he turns over Teddy's Polaroid yes. and finds, don't believe his lies. I'm like, well, that scans. He's telling me a different name than his legal name. So, of course, this guy's untrustworthy. Leonard now calls Teddy with the phone number that he has on the Polaroid. And Teddy says, yep, I'll be right there. And uh, this is the continuation then while we're waiting for Teddy. This is the continuation of what started in the motel room that we continued in that Mexican restaurant bathroom, which is we're starting to see that he is tattooed. Well, we've seen he's tattooed on his hand. We've seen that the top bit of his forearm is tattooed with something that says the facts. But now he pulls that sleeve all the way up and we see it doesn't just say the facts. It is a listing of facts. And so on his arm under the facts on his left hand side, there are two. Fact one, male. And we don't know if facts about what yes. we're assuming it's about whatever the the whatever happened to his wife and mystery and things like that. So we can kind of make some assumptions here. But fact one is it's a male and fact two white. So white male. And then on his other arm, he's got, OK, fact three, first name, John. And then underneath it in kind of like another script says or James, <laughs> you know, so but we know it's a, it's a J name. And then uh, fact four, the last name is G. So something it's John G. Which is what the mystery is going to come to be known as throughout this film. We're just going to refer to him as John G. Mm-hmm. And then on his leg, he finds fact five, a uh, drug dealer. I think it had been, is this an access to drugs or drug dealer uh-huh. was on there? Yeah. So it's it's been crossed out and then made into something else. And then fact six is a car license plate. Yeah, an actual license plate number, which just happens to match up with John Edward Gamble, Teddy, his license number as listed on the driver's license or the documents that are provided. Yep. So this info all matches up with, uh, with uh, Teddy's information and Leonard has this moment of realization and writes down on Teddy's picture, he is the one. And then in the mirror, sees one more tattoo, John G. raped and murdered my wife. It's the one tattoo that's tattooed in reverse. So we see when he steps and looks into the mirror, that's the big reveal mm-hmm. is he is now looking for someone who has raped and murdered his wife. And that is enough to make him turn the Polaroid over again and add the words, kill him mm-hmm. to the bottom of Teddy's photo. And then he loads the gun. Sure. He's getting ready to do it. And then we leave it and we so, go back to the hotel. Yeah, black and white again. So Leonard's again on the phone talking to someone about Sammy Jenkins. So we're finding out what that tattoo's backstory is. Mm-hmm. Talking about Sammy Jenkins helps Leonard understand his own situation. So Sammy wrote lots and lots of notes, but he got disorganized. So Leonard says, like, I got a different system. I'm more organized. I have a reason to exist. And Sammy didn't have that. And setting up this dichotomy between Leonard and Sammy Jenkins, which we haven't met any Sammy Jenkins. We don't know anything about Sammy Jenkins' situation at this point, but we do know that Leonard looks at him and goes, that guy got it wrong. And 
because of how Sammy got it wrong, I, Leonard, can do it the right way. Yes. And that's how he is organizing his whole life. And so that's all we know at this point about Sammy. Mm-hmm. And then back to color. <laughs> Leonard's pulling his car up at the city grill. So he follows directions on the Polaroid to meet Natalie. Looking at the photo, it says she also has lost someone. She will help you out of pity. So we meet Natalie. Natalie, carry on Moss. Mm-hmm. With it, she has a scraped and scarred face. She's wearing like sunglasses and Leonard walks right past her and she grabs onto him and pulls him into the booth. And tells him, I think that she's got information for him, that she has traced the license number that he asked her to trace. Mm-hmm. So there's more information about how that came to be and gives him an envelope that is going to be the envelope that he's going to open later and find all of this out. Ask him if he really wants it. Are you sure you want this? Yeah. He says, yes, I do for vengeance. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because like uh, Natalie knows the implications of giving him this information. She knows what kind of person Leonard is. Like she knows, like she's seen the tattoos. She knows who John G is. So she knows that once he has this, the line will be straight from like receiving the information to killing John G. Yeah. She knows that there is a John G, not who John G is. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, she's seen the tattoo of John G raped and murdered. Right, right, right. Life. But not the identity of who John G is. Exactly. Right. And she says that she has added into that pack, so something we didn't see in the last scene, in that pack she has left an address for an isolated spot where this whole thing, this whole vengeance thing could go down. And she still has his hotel key for some reason and gives that back to him. Mm-hmm. So we don't we don't know the situation there, but she gives him back his hotel key. She says he left it at her place. Okay, we can assume maybe. Why? They both have something in common, which I think she says that they both have something in common, which is that they are both survivors, Mm -hmm. which gives us a reason to understand initially why she is there helping him, even though we don't understand how they met or how that came to pass. Exactly. There's an entire backstory there that is not illuminated at all, but it's enough for us to trust her. You know, it's like, okay, I get why you're doing what you're doing. And so then we go to Leonard going to the bathroom, washing his hands, and he sees the remember Sammy Jenkins tattoo. And we're realizing, oh, we're seeing the moment that we left off before. Where he left his folder, where he uh, got the information to go on to the, the hotel, the discount hotel. Indeed. Back on the phone again, he's talking more about Sammy. And this is where we now get some information about Sammy and about why Leonard knows him. So the thing that we get to understand is what Leonard's previous job was. Leonard was an insurance investigator. Yes. And his job as described was uh, to see through people's bullshit. Yeah, and he says, like, it's classic, like, lie detection stuff. You watch, like, the eyes or the body language. Someone scratches their nose. That probably means they're lying. Introduces that Sammy Jenkins was his first real challenge, that this guy was telling the truth or not. Though we're not going to find out about what yet. First, we have to find Leonard driving away back from, in color again back in color in the evening i think and leonard is driving away from someplace that we don't know but right as he gets in the car and starts to drive away teddy is there teddy appears kind of throws himself across the hood and says hey i'm gonna buy you lunch or buy you dinner or whatever and so they go out together and at lunch leonard is quizzing teddy about what he has told him have i told you about sammy jenkins yes you freaking told me it's about sammy jenkins i'm sick of hearing about the guy <laughs> and teddy says forget sammy jenkins you tell me what have you found out so far about john Yeah, so he's back to the investigation, which shows us that Teddy has been involved with Leonard's investigation of John G, which makes it very confusing for us that have seen that he identifies Teddy as the John G 
later. Yes. So, okay, questions start coming up there. But, no, so Teddy says, Leonard's been talking days ago about maybe being set up to kill the wrong guy. Maybe he shouldn't just rely on his notes. Uh And Teddy's beginning to introduce some doubt there. And Leonard argues back that even memory itself is notoriously unreliable. Like, you know, eyewitness testimony doesn't usually match up. People forget the names of colors. They forget names. They forget all kinds of things. So collecting facts... You know, investigating the way that Leonard has been doing it is the way to go. And then Leonard then realizes, oh, I don't have my hotel room key. Right. And the whole memory being unreliable, you know, you can't trust eyewitnesses sort of thing. That's true. Any, uh, you know, I was a criminal justice minor. Like first class, first day is don't trust people's recollections of things because nine times out of 10, they're not getting it right Mm -hmm. or at least not entirely. And so that does scan Leonard's response to It's not memory that is reliable. It's facts that are reliable is the thing that's going to be tested as we're going forward because there's going to be a lot of facts and some of those facts may be contradictory. Yes, yes. And the other moment that like I really love from this scene is there's this great thing like Teddy asks him like, so you're like, you really need to kill this guy. And it's just like he killed my wife and destroyed my ability to live. And then Teddy has this great existential moment of of it taking Leonard's pulse and says, looks like you're still living. (laughs) And it's like it gets into that kind of like, you know, style like you know it's like oh like these moment to moment like existential moments are the only way we really know what existence is so Mm -hmm. if you want to be a bit of a philosophy major when you're watching this movie this is a great like moment of them saying you're alive you're experiencing things moment to moment your ability to live has not been destroyed and Leonard of course feels very differently about it can I take you down a slight rabbit hole for a second only because I have been you know I went down my own YouTube rabbit hole just for no reason whatsoever the other day and started watching an explanation of how you can prove that life is a simulation. Ooh. And what you said just sort of reminded me of it because it talked about it in the way of think of a video game and the rendering of environments in a video game, right? You only render what is immediately needed Mm -hmm. in order to see and understand and be in the moment and things that are in the distance may be represented, but they're not fully rendered. Like if I see the facade of a building, it's not rendering everything that's inside of it. It only renders it once you get there. Mm -hmm. And so that felt very relevant to this movie in that is reality hard baked or is reality changing as he's moving and finding things in his own memory? Oh, yeah. It's that the subject object thing that I think every university student that takes that philosophy class and really gets to realize like, oh, objective reality doesn't really exist. <laughs> to foreshadow a bit in the movie, it's that sense of like, does the world, is the world still there when I close my eyes? It's like, it, just because I observe it, just because I can't observe it doesn't mean that it's not true. And so it's a nice way that like, you know, for some people under the influence of something in a dorm room to have a very long conversation about. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I love this stuff. Because I mean, it's like, it, it blows everybody's minds when they first start thinking about it too much. And I think if you think about it too hard, it will send you down a existential crisis rabbit hole very quickly. I definitely shut you YouTube off after that. I just, I, I can't. I can't. Um, we're back in the hotel lobby again, so we've backed up a little bit more. This is back when Leonard is at the front desk. He's talking to Bert. He says, hey, I can't find my key. I think I may have misplaced it. Bert's going to go let him into his room. Bert lets him into a room, which Leonard walks into, but then Bert very quickly shuttles him out of that room saying, oh no, this is the wrong room, except for the fact that there's stuff in there that has Leonard's handwriting on it. Yeah, he's like, this got my handwriting then. And he's like, Bert confesses, ah, I've rented you two rooms because my boss said business is slow. And so like, you know, we need to try to make up the difference. It's all about your condition and that you wouldn't remember. Yeah, I'm taking advantage of you. Yeah. I'm telling you flat out, I'm taking advantage of you. And I'm telling you that flat out because you're not going to remember that in a few minutes. Yes. Yeah. And Leonard says like, well, thank you for being honest 
honest about like you know wanting to rip me off. It's like yeah, you won't you won't hold it against me. You won't remember. Uh-huh. <laughs> and which I like. Bert tells him just remember always get a receipt. Always get a receipt. Uh, always get a receipt. <laughs> and so this is a our first indication of an actual playing out of what Leonard had said before, which is people can take advantage of you mm-hmm. in this condition. And so we see here. People are taking advantage of him in this condition. Bert is renting extra rooms that he doesn't remember he's paying for. Yes, yes. So Leonard finds his photo about Natalie, that there is a Natalie, that there is a meeting that needs to take place with Natalie. So he goes back to that restaurant where we found him to afford to go meet her. Mm -hmm. Back to black and white in the hotel. Leonard is actively shaving his thigh. As the note told him to. Talking about Sammy Jenkins on the phone. So then we get a flashback. We meet Sammy for the first time. I said I hadn't watched this movie in a long time. Completely forgot about the whole Sammy Jenkins thing. (gasps) Completely forgot who plays Sammy Jenkins, which is one of the best actors around ever. A wonderful character actor, yeah. And someone that we have talked about multiple times on subgenre in various seasons, Stephen Tobolowsky. Mm-hmm. The role that he played that I cherish him for is uh, Action Jack, the uh, CEO they bring in on Silicon Valley to like run Richard's company after like he has some falling outs with his investors and stuff like that. It's a wonderful I, like satire of like the corporate CEO. Yes. <laughs> Everything he is in is memorable. Every role that he has is memorable. So we talked about him um, just a couple of episodes ago in, in episode one of season three in Groundhog Day's Ned Ryerson. Oh, Bing. Right. <laughs> and uh, and then in season two, uh, second episode, I think, when we talked about sneakers, he is Werner Brandis, which is one of my favorite characters in a movie ever. And it was the computer dating guy. The right? computer dating yeah, that's guy. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so we get introduced. Here's uh, Sammy that we've been referring to all of this time. Here's his wife, Mrs. Jenkins, played by Harriet Sansom Harris. And they have both been in some sort of car accident. Mm-hmm. And in the car accident, Sammy has sustained some sort of trauma which is causing him not to be able to remember anything. Right, right. And we begin to realize like the trick with Sammy's memory loss is anything that he knew how to do before the accident, including like prepare his wife's insulin shot. We see this very complex like thing that he's doing. He can do perfectly. It's all muscle memory. It's in like it's hard coded into his brain at this point. Right. But after the accident, completely can't form new memories. Which seems to be very similar to what we've been seeing with Leonard. Mm -hmm. Leonard knows certain things. Leonard can do certain things like shaving. He can do those things, but after whatever happened, he can't make new memories. So there's a parallel here. Yes. And we see that Leonard sent in sent in to investigate this. He s- thinks that Sammy recognizes him. So he's beginning to sniff some some BS happening in the way that Sammy's acting. Yeah, because he's got to go visit him. He knocks on the door. He's there every day or whatever, every week. And in one of those, he thinks he sees some sort of light of recognition in Sammy's eyes and goes, oh, yeah, this guy knows me. He can make new memories. Mm-hmm. Great insight into Sammy Jenkins. We needed that. A little bit of insight maybe into Leonard's condition. We needed that. But again, we're yanked away from it and we're taken to where Leonard left his key, which is at Natalie's. He wakes up in bed next to Natalie. Yeah. And just trying to figure out where he is. Like, oh, like, you know, it's like, where am I? I'm in bed. I've been, maybe this is her place. Like, oh, like, what just happened? And so Natalie wakes up next to him and begins to kind of run her fingers over his tattoos and see like all of these like disturbing messages about murder and rape that are written on there as well as faxes in the investigation. She finds it disturbing but says, I have to go. But she's going to talk to her friend at the DMV about John G's license plate. So. Which she knows because it's tattooed on his thigh. Exactly. Because he shaved earlier. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then Leonard is like looking through his photos, finds out who Natalie is from the photo in his pocket because, again, can't make new memories. 
series has to identify her from his own notes. And on the back of her photo, it gives him information about her, yeah. which is the she will help you out of pity because she's lost someone. Yes. Natalie then begins to uh, complicate that by saying, like, I'm helping you because you helped me. Uh-huh. What was that help? We don't, We have no idea. We don't know. Just like Leonard. We maybe suspect that it has something to do with the fact that you mentioned her face is you know, a little swollen or she's got like a busted lip or something. Mm-hmm. I think we can start to assume that it has something to do with that, but we don't know what. Yes, the violence that she had, she had also incurred. So she gives Leonard a memorable kiss, she hopes, and says, I think you will remember me the next time you see me. And his response is to apologize, knowing that he absolutely will not. Yes. As Leonard starts to leave, Teddy stops him as before and offers to buy him lunch. Right. This is that shot where he was getting out and getting in his car and then Teddy is there. Hey, let's go to lunch. This is where he was coming from. Is it getting clearer? Indeed, (laughs) indeed. No, the answer is no. It is not. We're back at the hotel, back on the phone, talking more about Sammy, right? Let's let's find out some more about Sammy's story. So Sammy has this condition. He's been in a car wreck. He has this condition where he can't make new memories or says he can't make new memories. Leonard is the insurance investigator who thinks that maybe he can because Mm -hmm. he thinks he saw this light of recognition in his eyes. And so the theory is that... Sammy should be able to, if not cognitively make memories, he should be able, like you said, to make muscle memories, right? Exactly, yeah. Like, it's a it's a B.F. Skinner in the conditioning type yes. thing. Like, you can learn by instinct and your muscles can, and your nervous system can remember something, even if your brain cannot articulate why it would be that way. So he says, okay, this is my key. Like, that's a different kind of memory than the short-term memory loss that Sammy's experiencing. So, if we can prove that, like, he can use conditioning to do this, you know, that will, like, help me the insurance investigator win the case. And conditioning is what Leonard has told us is sort of what his life is built around. Yes. He's, he's training himself through muscle memory to do things. So how do they test this? They bring in a doctor to test it. The doctor, familiar face popping up, which I had forgotten about, is Thomas Lennon. You'll know his face when you see him if you don't know the name, but if you've ever watched Reno 911, you know him immediately. <laughs> so he's testing him and the test, this is similar to the Skinner test as well, yeah? Yeah, you pick up uh, three objects and one, so a random one is electrified in each one of these exams. And the idea is that like someone who cannot remember that, oh, the middle triangle is electrified should eventually like become more nervous about picking it up because your muscles are beginning to learn like, oh, that that piece is the one that's got the shock on it. Sammy fails this test, which leads Leonard to think that he's faking. And help me clarify this because is it if he can't remember when he gets shocked by the middle triangle or whatever, if his body can't develop that memory, then does that mean that it's not physical, it's psychological? Is that sort of what the what the theory is here? Right. That means that he's physically capable of making new memories, which would imply that he's putting on an act that like, oh, I can't remember anything whatsoever, physical or yeah. mental, because he's only covered for, uh, I think he's only covered for like physical, physical. Inju- injuries. Right. Like this proves that, it's, that physically he's capable of doing new memories and therefore loses the insurance claim. That's what it's leading toward. That's what they're trying to yes. prove so that the insurance company can deny the claim. So- we're back at Natalie's. Yeah. I think by this point, we can assume that this is prior to the last thing we saw, which was him in bed with Natalie. So, mm-hmm. OK, how did he get in bed, bed with Natalie in the first place? We back up to him at Natalie's door. He's knocking on the door. Mad. He's angry. Yeah. And the thing that he's angry about is the Polaroid that he's got in his hand that's got a bloody man. Yeah. Labeled Dodd. And she's just like, you know, it's like, who, like, you know, who the hell is Dodd? Yeah, a dude with duct tape over his mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who, who is this guy? We don't know who this guy is. We just know 
he looks like he's been beaten to a pulp and he's got duct tape over his mouth. Yeah. Natalie looks happy about this and says, well, I guess I don't have to worry about him anymore. Uh Uh-huh. And tells him that don't worry about that. That's my problem. That's a me problem. It's not part of your investigation. You can just sort of get rid of that photo. And then Leonard's, of course, very confused. And then Natalie says, no, you offered to help me with Dodd when I showed you what Dodd did to my face and points to the injuries of the fat lip that she had incurred and everything else. Yes. She takes the photo of Dodd, crumples it up so Leonard doesn't have to worry about it anymore, tries to tear it. He says, oh, no, no, you have to burn those, but destroys the photo. But Leonard voices his, whether it's paranoia or whether it's reality, Leonard voices that this moment doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. It feels like someone, not saying you, Mm -hmm. Natalie, but it feels like someone is trying to get him to kill the wrong guy. Yes. He feels like he's being manipulated. And we don't know whether that's true or whether that's not being true. We do know that there has been manipulation shown before Mm -hmm. in uh, the hotel guy who's been renting rooms. Yeah. So stakes are going up. You know, it's like there's this sense of like, oh, I could make a mistake that could lead me to kill the wrong person. And yes. So, yeah. You know, she calms him down or at least gets him off of being as hyped as he is now. He has a vulnerable moment mm-hmm. and talks about, you know, there's certain things that you know for sure. Like I know how this table feels, but there are certain things and lots of things that he doesn't know for sure. And it's driving him nuts. Yes. And so in an effort to calm him down, she takes off his shirt and sees all of these tattoos, all the notes. Like his life has been consumed by this quest for vengeance. And so they read them together. And then Natalie says she has lost someone too. Mm -hmm. Shows him a picture of a man with, uh, you know, a Fu Manchu facial hair and says, it's uh, Jimmy. He went to meet someone named Teddy. And never came back. Uh Uh-huh. And so she asks Leonard, like, what are you going to do when you find John G? Yeah, let's just put Teddy aside for a minute. John G, no connection, no connection. But when you get to John G, what are you going to do? I'm going to kill him. Great. Yes. That's perfect. I approve. (laughs) She says, I can help you find him, Natalie says. Yep. And off to bed they go. Yes. After the night that they have together, he's sort of sitting up in bed talking out loud or in his head. I don't know that we're going to be sure which one it is, but is talking to himself. And we get a new flashback, this time not to Sammy Jenkins, but to Leonard's wife, um, who's played by Georgia Fox, who is shown in these kind of fleeting, nothing important memories. They're, They're just moments in a day. Yeah. Like reading a book, like washing dishes, something very, very domestic and normal. And he talks about he doesn't know when his wife left. He can't remember that. He doesn't know, you know, when she's coming back. He can't know any of that for sure. He has no memory of it, but he feels that she's not coming back. Yeah, that absence is there. He feels that she's gone and asks the question, like, how am I supposed to heal if you can't feel time? If you're only experiencing these things in these, like, isolated existential moments, how can you heal from the kind of trauma that he's gone through? And that's really the big question posed that is enlightening what it is we're supposed to be thinking about here in the film. How in the world can a person heal if they can't feel time? Which, you know, at the time, I, I'm assuming in the movie when I watched it the first time, I was like, oh, that's interesting and glossed over it. And now as an older person in seeing it, I go, oh, that's deep. Yeah, it's real talk and everything. That's real talk. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and this inspires Leonard to like, you know, like get up from bed, go through Natalie's house, find like, you know, he sees the photo of her and Jimmy together again in happier times. And on the back of Natalie's photo, he writes the note, she has also lost someone. She will help you out of pity. And so this is why we understand now when they met up in that diner and he knew that she was going to help him by giving the folder with John Edward Gamble's information in it. This is the moment that led him to that conclusion that she would help him. Oh, my Lord. Alan. I don't. That's the whole movie, right? That, I mean, it's surely that's the whole movie. Wrapped it up. 
No, it's just like and I like as thorny as the whole thing is. This yeah. is why I love this flick. It's like it's fun enough to watch it again multiple times because you begin to notice like how intricately plotted the whole thing is because they're all of these details matter. They all come back later. It is so far for us. Not we won't spoil anything ahead, but so far for us, it's an interesting movie. It's driving forward. There's a mystery. And it's something that I want to figure out how to get to the end of whether this is making for good radio. I have no idea, but let's see if we can. Uh, I don't know what I was going to say. Take an ad break. <laughs> let's take an ad break. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, subgenre listeners, this is Josh Dassel, host of the show you're listening to and founder of Kabunki, the company behind it all. If you listen to many podcasts, I do, then you know at this point or somewhere around here, you expect to hear a commercial or two, you know, ads. This is the time when we hear companies who support a podcast speak directly to their audience. So why aren't you hearing one now? Because this space is still available. Have a business, organization, product, or cause you need to promote? Ask Kabunki how to get your ads in front of our global audience of listeners today. The audience knows about movies. They know about pop culture. And soon, they could know about you, too. Support this podcast and advertise on Subgenre or other popular shows brought to you by Kabunki. Ask us more on the show website, subgenrepodcast.com or at kabunki.com. Kabunki, leave your mark. Hey, you're listening to Subgenre. We are talking Memento. I am here with playwright Alan Mall, and we are trying to unscramble our heads from the scrambling we've done to them in this first section. There will be more scrambling, I'm sure. This movie makes me both interested and tired at the same time. It does take a lot out of you, yeah. Because like it's, <laughs> I said at the beginning, I was only head on in the background, and I think how I should have said it was, it was our go-to one whenever we wanted something good to watch. Because you can't do something else while you're watching this movie. There's too many like details that are coming at you fast and furious and an odd order for you to be distracted. Well, we'll try not to be distracted as we go forward. Before we get back into this tangled web that is Memento, let's take just a small moment here to geek out. <laughs> awesome. In Geek Out, we take a fan-level perspective of some topic and have some fun with it. And this is a time twister season. So we could talk about time travel. We could talk about timelines and, and movies that work with that. But I think this one specifically gives us a chance to chat about amnesia and memory problems in movies and where we feel like that's done well and where we feel like that's done not as well. So I'm, I'm going to turn the floor over to you for a second and just say, have you seen memory problems in amnesia treated well in a movie? Yeah, it's one of those things they tell young screenwriters, like, don't write this into your film because it's been done so many times not in the best way possible. But of course, writers don't always listen to their teachers and everything. No, hey, I know. But uh, and you get why. Amnesia instantly puts you in the protagonist's you know, shoes because you're like, oh, they don't know why they're there. I don't know why they're there. We can empathize together that way. But movies that do it well usually put some kind of a spin on the conceit. I mean, my favorite Amnesia movie ever is 
probably Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Sure. Because that's like a, and the amnesia in that one did not happen by accident. The movie asked the question, what would make a person willingly want to forget some of the most important parts of their life? It's like, well, if they're connected with heartbreak, breakup, and like deep emotional and romantic pain, then of course you'd be better off just having a spotless mind, not, you know, remembering these things. But then the movie also asks like, well, what if people were meant to be together and things just didn't quite work out? And then even if they do both try to forget, what would bring them back into union once more? So that's probably my favorite example of it done well, because the amnesia is not the entire movie. It's the exploration of like memory and love and romance itself. Okay. Contrast that. Where has it not been done well? Oh my gosh. Which, yeah. What's a great example of this is awful. I actually had to look up this movie's title because I had forgotten but uh, Barry Pepper and Greg Kinnear and Jim Caviezel were in a thriller movie called Unknown from back in 2006 I want to say. And the concept of this movie is interesting enough like like five men wake up in a warehouse and none of them are quite sure how they got there or what happened and they're trying to deduce like what went down and so Amnesia plays a central part where like no one can remember like what the background material is but it very quickly just spirals into this like well which of us is bad. Which of us did bad things? Like, I have scars on my knuckles. Does that mean I punch someone? Like, you know, it's like, it's a flick that, like, the concept is interesting enough, but very quickly you realize, like, oh, the amnesia is just an excuse for, like, shallow plotting and, like, characterization that no one is going to remember. <laughs> Even a person who loves movies and stories as much as me pretty much blocked this one out of my memory, pun intended. <laughs> I had no memory of that film whatsoever yeah. until you mentioned it, and now it's just, like, vaguely ringing bells. Yeah. Intentionally misremembering that film. I think is maybe what's happening yeah, here. exactly it. I, I pulled an eternal sunshine of my own and just blotted that one out. I didn't <laughs> even need brain damage to do it. I have to say my favorite, you know, whether it's a great treatment of memory loss, I have no idea from a scientific perspective, but one of my favorite treatments of memory loss in a film is the Bourne series. Yes. Yes. I mean, come on. He's a secret agent who forgot he was a secret agent. That's great. He's got all the muscle memory to be able to kick ass and do everything else that he wants to do. This goes, you know, to what we were talking about in the episode about developing muscle memory and, you know, how your body should be able to do that. And you hold on to that. Jason Bourne has all of it. You know, he knows definitely how to kill people, but forgot that he likes it. Yeah. And if you want like a deeper cut of film that like even takes the same kind of short term memory loss that uh, Memento is doing, there's a great flick called uh, The Lookout with Justin Gordon-Levitt. It came out in I think in 2007 or so, but it's the same kind of memory loss. Like a, a character went through an accident and is gets implicated into a and tied up into a bank robbery scheme, but it treats it a little bit more realistically than Memento. It's told in linear fashion, so it doesn't like start at the ending and go to the beginning, but you begin to realize like, oh, how would someone that meant well actually exist in the world knowing that he could be taken advantage of and all these things? It's a really, really well acted, well put together movie. The Lookout, highly recommended. Like you said, amnesia in film and TV, my problem with it when it's used, I probably have a lot of problems, but my biggest problem when it's used is the inconsistency. Yes. It is, I can't remember things except I can. You know, there's no explanation about why I can remember certain things and why I can't. I can remember to tie my shoes, but I can't remember to take the brush out of my hair when I walk out of the house in the morning. (laughs) And that tends to be the weak link, I think, on writing memory problems in movies. Do you feel like that's accurate? It always comes up because it's like, you know, you can't 
can't make your character into, you know, a complete blank slate. He doesn't know how to button his shirt. So you end up having to like specify like, oh, well, it was after this accident and then everything before that you can remember. So, you know, you know, when someone makes this book reference, what that is, but you know, it's like, you can't remember anything that you saw afterwards. Right. But the audience is like, spends more time wondering about the details of the memory loss instead of the story you're actually trying to yeah. tell them. The other thing about memory loss I find in, in film is that it's used a lot of the time in dramatic ways. So like you said with, I can't forget the title now, even of the movie you were telling us about a minute unknown. ago, unknown, even in unknown or in things like born. And, you know, it's used for very dramatic purposes. I can't remember my life is in danger or I can't remember my relationship is falling apart or in spellbound, you know, go back to Hitchcock and you can, you can see memory loss used in that way. But I tend to like it when it's used for comedic effect or at least to set up a comedic situation. So the, the two that come to mind for me, the Kurt Russell, Goldie Hawn movie Overboard. I see you nodding. Were you going for that one? Yeah. Not the remake. Not the remake. from me. Yeah. From from 2020. What was it? 2018. They remade it. No, the 87 film with Goldie Hawn. Excellent conceit of the haughty rich woman falls off a yacht. Can't remember who she is and has to go live as a lower class woman like the the rest of us. The chemistry between Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn and that is just so good. And that's that's why you don't need to replace them with other stars. See the original. That I like a whole lot. The other one that only just occurred to me is the Muppets Take Manhattan where Kermit forgets that he's who he is and the rest of the Muppets are trying to they need Kermit in order to you know make life work and take Manhattan Mm. but Kermit can't remember them and that is a moment where yet it's used for both comedic effect, but also for some really touching moments, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, as we've talked about in the episode on the Great Muppet Caper, the Muppets are masters of. I thought you were going to go with a uh, 50 First Dates, the Drew Barrymore, uh, Adam no. Sandler flick, which is, I don't, I would not say is a great movie, but it is a deeply charming movie mostly sure. because the chemistry between those two like makes it all work. But it's a similar kind of conceit to Memento where Drew Barrymore's character can't like create memories of this guy she's seeing, but it's still drawn to him. So they get to have... 51st day. It's like they have to build the relationship without being able to, uh, you know, form lasting recollections. Well, we'll go back to the big movie in a minute, but let's tie this off by a screenwriter, me, mm-hmm. asking a playwright, you, and screenwriter, yeah. what is a treatment of amnesia in a film that you have not seen or have not seen done well that you would like to see if you were writing one. Oh, man. I would be shocked if like there weren't examples of this already, but I would think of one that was playing up how memory is a story you tell yourself and you begin to real, and it would be a, a story about someone who was willfully modifying their own memories in order to not even just take out bad things, but to make things better than they were because they were perhaps, maybe they did something they were ashamed of. Maybe they like suffered a loss that they would just prefer to never think about again, but change the details of the story. So perhaps someone that died very painfully, like passed away peacefully in their sleep or that time that I like lied and got caught for it was a time that like no one ever asked and that everything just kind of peacefully resolved on its own. So it would be interesting. It's a bit of a eternal sunshine type case, but it would be someone willfully modifying their own memories, not to delete them, but to make them seem more pleasant. I thought you were going to go the other way with it. Somebody modifying their own memories, but in the service of something nefarious, which I was going to say has been done. It's called Total Recall. Right. I'd like your 
approach to it of let's take this thing that was awful and make it better by changing me. Yeah. And me not realizing that I'm changing me. Yeah. And the tough thing is even saying that it reminds me of that Robin Williams movie, The Final Cut, where his job is to like go through people's memories at their funerals to present the most rosy picture of them possible. But I'm getting into the idea of like, if you really think of it as a story, you tell yourself, well, why wouldn't you just change details to make it seem that way? It's why eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable is that people tend to, you know, make details, put them in a better light than they actually are. But I like the idea of someone willfully doing it both to themselves and perhaps to others. And so they could, in their their own minds, create this sort of glossy utopia where everyone is uh, only has perfect recollections of a life well-lived. <laughs> Coming to a stage and or theater near you. Or a podcast studio. I like it, Alan. I think it's done well in this film, so maybe we should get back to talking about that. Here we go. So when we left off, Leonard was at Natalie's house He had had this discussion with Natalie about this guy named Jimmy. They had discussed about John G. All of these things. She had seen his tattoos. They had slept together. There had been this whole developing of a relationship between Leonard and Natalie. We pick back up, of course, after a real-time scene back in the hotel in black and white with Leonard on the phone talking more about Sammy and those tests. They keep testing Sammy with the conditioning objects. You know, he still doesn't learn to not grab the electrified triangle or whatever it is, although he should have because he should be physically capable of making new memories through conditioning. So this leads Leonard to conclude that, oh, Sammy's condition is psychological, not physical. He wasn't covered for psychological damage. He was covered for physical injury. So the insurance company turns down Sammy's claim and Leonard gets a big promotion. Yeah, it's good for Leonard. And and all of that was based really around this sort of glint of recognition that Leonard had sensed in Sammy when he went to his house that one time. Caught the whiff of BS and refused to let go of it. Yeah. Exactly. And so the way he phrases it is the wife got the bills and I got the promotion, right? So um, there you go. didn't work for Sammy, but it worked for me. Yeah. Yeah. Cut two out of the black and white, back to the color. Leonard is having a flashback of some murder taking place. I think we can assume which murder it was, you know, since he's got it tattooed across his chest, but we don't get a whole lot about it. He does wake up from it, and the first thing he chooses to do is to open the uh, bedside drawer where he finds a couple of things inside. Yes, yes, indeed. So he's like, I'm in a hotel room. I don't know which hotel room it is, but there's nothing in here, nothing but the Gideon Bible. And he cuts himself off and realizes there is a handgun in there. Yeah, sitting on top of the Bible. Mm Mm-hmm. And then he starts hearing some muffled groans from the closet. And he opens it up and sees. He um, sees Dodd. That we know is Dodd because we've seen the picture. But like Leonard's just like there's a man with duct tape over his nose. And he's clearly had, had his, his ass kicked in this closet. I don't know how he got there. Then he hears Teddy knock on the door. Uh-huh. Teddy's there always. In these scenes, Teddy shows up at the the right or wrong time, but he is there for this one. Knocks on the door. Leonard checks his photo as he's looking through the peephole. You know, is that Teddy? Okay, that's Teddy. Let's him in. They're trying to have some sort of discussion. This is like we're into a part of the movie to where there is a bit of levity that's injected in a couple of parts, I think, in order to keep us from just completely wanting to bang our head against the wall. Right, right. Because like with a thriller, if it's tense the entire time, it's not as enjoyable as if you have a little bit of like comic relief and in this moment of just verifying that him and Teddy have been friends for a while it's like I'm like if I told you about my condition then Lenny's like and then Teddy's like every time you, it's like I've had more rewarding friendships than this Leonard <laughs> but I do get to keep telling the same jokes <laughs> and while they're having this conversation there's this noise from the closet the muffling and the kicking and the everything which at first Teddy writes off to neighbors 
uh, in the Amorous ho- neighbors. Amorous neighbors, exactly. And they're trying to have this conversation, and Teddy is trying to get more information out of Leonard. The the noise in the closet won't stop. Finally, they go, they go to the closet. Leonard opens the closet. Inside is Dot. His mouth is taped, and Teddy's first response is, is that John G? <laughs> yeah, and then Leonard's like, uh, like, I don't think so. I think it's this guy Dot, right? Like, it's, it's the look of the picture. I can't recall. I don't honestly rem- see, won't remember if he sees that... the picture yet. Yeah. Okay, um, yes. Yeah, so he does look at the photo, but like, yeah, Teddy asks if that's John. So Teddy asks, is that John G? And then Dodd doesn't say his name. He doesn't say, I'm Dodd. But Leonard says, how did you get this way? And Dodd's like, you did it. You beat the crap out of me. Who beat you up? You did. Yeah. Oh. (laughs) And so, okay, they realize they've got to get him out of here. Leonard's got to get back on the trail for whatever it is he's trying to solve. Teddy's got to go with him, but they they can't leave this guy here. Yeah, so they look through the photos, find Dodd's picture on the back. It says, get rid of him, ask Natalie. Oh, we need to get rid of him. (laughs) And so they take him. They use the gun that was sitting in the drawer on top of the Bible. They use it to, like, shuffle this guy out of the hotel at gunpoint. Leonard, I guess, in in the course of that, realizes this isn't his room, right? This is Dodd's room. Mm -hmm. And so they use the, the gun to get him out of the room. They take him down to there's some vehicles waiting and uh, Leonard gets into a truck with Dodd, gets mm-hmm. into Dodd's truck and Teddy gets into his own car to follow them. Yes. And they drop Dodd off somewhere and basically tell him to leave town. And then uh, Teddy says like, oh, well, you should have stolen his car. Like, you know, just looking at this nice, like, I think it was like a Ford Expedition or something else yep. that drives away. And Leonard's like, well, you've, you've got a car. And, Teddy, and Teddy's like, yeah, you want to trade? Watching the guy with the Jaguar and he's driving this like, you know, Pontiac POS <laughs> or whatever he is. And Teddy does make a comment, I think, as they're leaving the motel about wanting to drive the Jag. Mm-hmm. He's like, let, let me take this. You take my car and whatever. Teddy wants to drive the car and it doesn't happen this time. You know, Leonard doesn't let it happen. Mark that in your brain. Yes. Mark that in your brain. That may come around. But Leonard says he he doesn't want to steal cars. He doesn't want to do any of that. He just wants to know what is going on. And so that leads him all the way back to Natalie's house to show up at her front door with the photo and yeah. say, he's angry, banging on the door. Who, like, you know, who the hell is Don? And so then we realize, oh, we're back at the moment that we just saw before. And so in our flash back then, we get more of talking on the phone about Sammy Jankus, mm-hmm. specifically talking this time about the wife. Yes. And so Leonard is referring to her as, not referring to her, but Leonard is talking about her as the person who kind of took the brunt of the medical costs because the insurance wouldn't pay for them. Right. And Sammy can't work anymore as a, uh, they would say he's an accountant or a CPA or something like that because he can't form new memories. And so, you know, the wife now has to support both of them and is stuck with all of the hospital bills and everything else. So, And the story is that it just killed them. They fell apart as people and as a, a couple. And Leonard is kind of having some pangs of remorse thinking that maybe he caused it mm-hmm. and ends that scene by dragging out some needles, which it looks like he's going to start tattooing. Exactly, yeah. Tattoo needles, not drug needles for those that right. have not seen this flick. Right. And then flashback over, we're back in color and Leonard awakens on a toilet seat holding a bottle of scotch. Who doesn't? I love this line where he's just looking at it and just thinks to himself, I don't feel drunk. Why do I have this half-drunk bottle of scotch? Uh-huh. Gets a moment to look at himself in the mirror. He sees he's got the scratches on his face, which we've been seeing since the beginning of the movie, and decides he's going to take a shower. Why not? You know, you're in the shower. You've been, you feel kind of gross and cut up. You should uh, wash yourself off. You're in the bathroom. So then, as he's taking the shower, he hears someone enter and use the toilet, and it flushes, giving him a clue that he is not alone in this hotel room anymore. Okay, pause there. He's in a shower, right? The shower is running. 
someone comes in and uses the toilet but doesn't pay attention to the fact that the shower's running. When you have to go, Josh, you have to go. <laughs> you have to go. Apparently. Apparently. But yeah, and then it's a, I was always filled with empathy for Dodd in this case because now a naked Leonard flies out of yeah. his shower stall and attacks him. With a scotch bottle. With a scotch bottle in, in the bathroom. Yeah. We get a scuffle and then like, you know, as uh, Dodd shoves Leonard against the wall, he grabs the scotch bottle and then Leonard swings it, hitting him on the jaw and knocking him unconscious. Which would be bad enough figuring out what to do with Dodd, except for housekeeping shows up right about that. No, 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 stay out. I got to do something. Leonard's got to solve the problem. So he duct tapes Dodd's mouth. He takes a photo of Dodd so he can remember who the heck this guy is, right? Which Mm -hmm. is the photo that we're going to see later, labels the photo Dodd, which is, I think he gets the name from Natalie's note. Yes. And then marks the words, get rid of him Mm -hmm. on the back of the photo. Calls Teddy, puts the handgun in the drawer with the Bible and like asks Teddy to come over and then feeling very, very exhausted falls asleep on the bed. (laughs) Which is then how we get the pistol on top of the Bible that he'll wake up to find and not know how it got there a little bit later. Okay, so flashback again. Leonard's talking about how you can't bully someone into a memory, right? They remember or they don't. You can't bully them into a memory, but Mrs. Jenkins tried. She got so fed up with Mr. Jenkins, with Sammy, that she kept doing things like, I think, was hiding food and trying to get him to find it and other things. Yeah, right? just, you can just yelling at him. heartbreaking performance by this actress. Like, she puts, like, the pen, like, the pen and paper in his pocket and says, like, you're going to carry this around. You're going to write everything down. You can just tell that Sammy is deeply confused and anxious at the same time. And so you're just watching these two people not be able to connect. And while Leonard's recounting this story, he tells the person that he's on the phone with who has to go, oh, well, I'll, I'll call you back. And he makes a tattoo gun using a ballpoint pen and the needles that he's been heating up with a lighter, I think. The thought of tattooing oneself like that, I just, I don't know. I guess you won't remember the pain a few minutes later. Yeah, it's true. It still hurts. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we talked a minute ago about how this part of the film injects some levity. And the next scene is, I think, probably the funniest scene to me in the whole piece. You cut into the scene right as Leonard is hauling ass, running after somebody. He's running on one side of, you know, what look like buildings or trailers or storage boxes or something. And there's a guy running on the other side. And Leonard's like, I think I'm chasing this oh, guy. I'm chasing him. And, yeah. then, and, and then, then, boom, there's a gunshot yeah, or something. pulls out the pistol and points at him. He's like, no, he's chasing me. <laughs> okay, understand. <laughs> Now I'm not chasing him. He's chasing me. I gotta go. Which I, I love that moment. He makes it to the car. Uh, Leonard does and manages to drive off. So he gets out of there just in time for whatever this chase was that's going on with what we saw is Dodd finds the note in his pocket saying where Dodd's like hotel room is. And yes. Thinks like yeah I'm gonna get I'm gonna get the jump on you. Goes into the hotel room ready to like hide and like you know stop this guy. Yeah. Goes into the floor of the hotel where Dodd's room is, stands outside, knocks on the door, and waits to see someone at the peephole. And the instant he sees someone at the peephole, he kicks the door in, thinking he's got the jump on Dodd, and it turns out he's kicked in the wrong door. Yeah, like the number was mistaken. Leonard apologizes to this person he has knocked unconscious. Poor dude. <laughs> yeah, these are just the things that happen when you're moving too fast. But it's nice. There's those three comic beats that come relatively on top of each other. That's one of my favorite parts of the film. So he tries the next room then. Okay, got the wrong room. Oops, sorry goes to the next one. Nobody comes to the peephole when he knocks this time, so he lets himself inside and uh, looks around for something to protect himself with, and what he finds is the scotch bottle. Yes, so he grabs the bottle of scotch, sits in the toilet to wait for Dodd, but the moment has lasted too long, and now he has forgotten why he's there, which leads us to the moment we had just seen. 
he wakes up on the toilet holding the scotch bottle and wondering why he doesn't feel drunk. We see him a few moments later, sometime in the past in black and white, doing some of those tattoos that we saw him prepping to do, which are fact five, which is access to drugs. Mm-hmm which we will see, if we remember from earlier, has at some point been changed to drug dealer. Yes. Right? Yeah. And it's his own tattoo that way, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Now we go to a place we haven't seen before, or we don't think we've seen before. It's like a derelict, like, construction site or factory or something like this big open area. You know, it's like as dawn is is breaking, Leonard, like, gets up from, like, a fire that's been going and then gets into his car, begins to drive. And behind him on the road, a truck flashes his lights and honks. It's honking aggressively. Mm -hmm. And it's following him aggressively. And we don't know who this person is until they pull up next to him and draw a pistol and point it through the window. And actually, I think they chase him, right? Chase him off into pulling off into a parking space, get out of the truck and come up to the side of the car with the pistol. Yeah. And then the person whom we know is Dodd says like, nice car. Then Leonard tempted levity says, are you interested in purchasing one? (laughs) Dodd points the handgun at him and and orders him to get out. Leonard tries to escape. In the process, the window of the car gets shot out with the handgun, which explains why the driver's side window was broken earlier in the film. And which explains why we had just come from seeing a chase between Mm -hmm. Dodd and Leonard. That's how that started. Indeed. Okay. Leonard is tattooing himself, right? We go back to that. But he gets a phone call, picks it up. Who is this? That's it. That's all we get in that moment is that he has just tattooed that fact five on him about the access to drugs and gets a phone call. So, okay, let's go back to reality here. Mm -hmm. Leonard is getting into his car. He is driving to this location that we've been calling an abandoned factory. When he gets in the car, it looks like he's starting at some apartment complex Mm -hmm. garage. Gets to this abandoned factory, has a paper bag, and begins to burn things from inside of it that we don't quite understand yet. So there's a teddy bear, I think, and there's a hairbrush and a book. Oh, yeah, paperback novel, yeah. And so he's burning these things, but we very we very quickly start to understand what they are because of a flashback. Yeah, we flashback to his wife reading the book that he is setting aflame. And then after these items are all consumed, Leonard stands up in the morning as dawn breaks as before, and he's getting ready to get back in the car when Dodd will start chasing him. It feels like the loops are getting shorter mm-hmm. to me. Yes. I don't. I haven't timed them, mm-hmm. but it feels like the distance between when we jump into a scene and when we jump out of a scene or the duration of any of these particular scenes is beginning to compress itself, which if that's true, that's cool. That's good filmmaking. Yeah, the beats are coming faster. So it's like it shows you that like, you know, we're escalating the conflict. Things are getting tighter and more intense. Okay, so we saw him start to tattoo the thing about access to drugs on his leg. We get back to the phone calls in the hotel. He is tattooing fact five on himself the caller who he is talking to on the phone says that there is more on this drugs angle which really interests leonard now we don't hear the voice but we hear leonard's response to Mm -hmm. that and leonard starts to refer to a police report talking about drugs being found in a vehicle and that the car they were found in was stolen so like uh leonard has a lot of friends in the police from his time as an insurance investigator he knew that there were things that were crossed out in the report about the murder that he's reading that's what we see like he has gone through and then doctoring the report himself he knows the police never chased John G. So Leonard believes John G is the one really responsible. The police never bought into it. Apparently, whatever this stolen car with drugs in it had to do with everything, the car was at Leonard's house or was in front of Leonard's house or something because he he sort of ties those threads together for us for a second and that he thinks John G took the car, mm-hmm. but the police never pursued John G, if I understood that correctly. Right. And that there's missing information in this, yeah, right, in the police report. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Leonard 
Picard in the next scene then wakes up, which we've seen him wake up before. We've seen him wake up in Natalie's bed. This time when he wakes up, he is not in Natalie's bed. He is alone in a bed that we haven't seen before. His home bedroom next to his wife's stuff before he's burned it. This is his whatever apartment he shared with his wife back in the day. Mm -hmm. He has, I guess, been having a dream about her, been having memories about her, wakes up, feels the pillow beside him, which references back to him saying, you know, I can feel that she's gone, but I don't know how. Mm -hmm. And all of those things that we will see him later burning in the fire are kind of scattered about this room. So we know he's going to gather. We get these very abrupt flashes to like the murder taking place. And so it's this like very suspenseful, horrific thing happening in the bathroom. Yeah, what 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 is this? Like at the end of this scene, which we'll get more information about in a minute, but this is the oddest part of this whole film to me, is from being in this bed, seeing the stuff around the room, he wakes up to go to the bathroom, opens the door, and inside there is a blonde woman doing cocaine. And then says, oh, was I supposed to lock the bathroom door? You realize, and yeah. We'll we'll get who that person is in a minute, but did that stand out to you as much as it did to me in terms of just a, this is an odd moment? It is a strange one, because I think like it's what they're trying to do feels like they're blurring the place between Leonard's reality and the memory he has of the murder happening. So it's intentionally trying to F with your perception that way. Mm-hmm. But also, it's like in a movie that's already disorienting with time, it feels to me like a facet of it that didn't need to be yeah. <laughs> as complicated as it was. It's yeah. a weird moment, but we'll understand it, of course, here in a minute. We'll have to back up a little bit to do that, but we'll understand it. What we do go to now, though, is an understanding of why one of Leonard's tattoos changes. So he's back on the phone. He's talking to whoever this is on the phone about the police report. He's telling him that the drug story never really made sense to him, whatever the facts of the drug story Yeah, because are. like, you know, it's like if they were junkies looking for a score, why would they do it while they had this big pile of drugs in the car? It doesn't make sense to him. And the caller says that they know something, which causes then Leonard to change access to drugs to drug dealer. And Leonard goes, oh yeah, like that. That mm-hmm. makes sense to me. Yeah. Now we're getting somewhere. Back to color. Back to color. Leonard pulls up at the discount inn. He takes a Polaroid of the place to remember it. He's back in his room. He pastes a map to the wall, puts the picture of the discount inn on it. He gets out the phone book, which, uh, you know, to everyone listening that was born after, (laughs) I don't know, like the year 2000 when this film was made. That's why you you used to have to look up businesses before Google existed. So he opens up the phone book, calls an escort service. And orders the escort. She arrives. We instantly recognize, okay, this is the woman that will be in the bathroom doing the coke. But he is giving her what to her are very, very specific but unusual instructions. Has all of these like items like, you know, that belong to his wife, a clock, the teddy bear, like the old paperback novel. The hairbrush, yeah. Yeah. And just ask this um, escort to just pretend like these are your things and just kind of place them around the room and wait for me to fall asleep. And then I need you to go wait in the bathroom. Yeah. Doesn't want her to use them or touch them yeah. or do anything else. Don't interfere with them. Just put them around like they're yours head to the bathroom, and oh, by the way, I'm going to go to sleep. So just make sure when you get up in the night to go to the bathroom that you slam the bathroom door hard enough to wake me up. Mm-hmm. And the uh, prostitute kind of rolls her eyes and says, whatever gets you off. <laughs> <laughs> and she does what he asks, mm-hmm. which will then lead us into him discovering her in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And there you go. Black and white. Back Sammy, to the hotel. Back to the hotel. 
<laughs> Leonard is tattooing himself. We get a flashback now back to the Sammy Jenkins story. And this time it is Sammy's wife who has come to visit Leonard in his office, presumably at the insurance company, and really just wants some sort of truth from him. She's having a hard time dealing with this situation. Is he really faking it? Well, ma'am, I can't, you know, I can only tell you what the company could tell. No, 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 no. I don't want you to give me the company line. I want you to tell me what you think. She t- asks him for that. And after a moment, he gives it to her. And he says that he thinks that Leonard should be capable of making new memories. Yeah, physically capable of making new memories. Sticking to the legal line and everything else. And like, you know, he recognizes that she wants closure, but he also wants to cover his own ass and make sure that he's not like, you know, going to expose his company to liability by giving her hope when he shouldn't legally do so. So, And it seems to be an answer that at least satisfies her for the moment. She thanks him and she leaves. We don't know yet what the outcome of that is, but what we do know is that Leonard has a bandage over his arm. A fresh tattoo uh, is what we assume um, has that over his arm and is kind of pulling at it. We'll find out what that is later. Back to color. Leonard gets in his car outside of Natalie's and inside the car is Teddy, who's sitting in there and says, a car this nice, you really should lock it. Leonard, like anyone who doesn't recognize a man sitting in the passenger seat of his vehicle, says, who are you? Why are you here? (laughs) And Teddy makes sure to tell him, I'm Teddy, you know me. All of that. Got your picture. Yeah. Got got the picture. You're coming from Natalie's. We both know that. Do not trust her. You don't want to believe what she's saying, right? Don't go back into her. I know you've been in her place. Don't go back into her place. You need to go to a hotel. Maybe the discount hotel. Maybe the one that you're going to take a picture of later. Yes, yes. And makes him write on her photo, do not trust her. And the reason he says that is he shows her, I think he pulls out of the glove compartment or something, some bar coasters. Mm -hmm. And it has the name of the place where she works. And she's written on the back of it or something. And come see me or something. Come by, come by after. Come Natalie. by after Natalie. Yeah. But he tells her, look, you can't trust her. Her boyfriend's a drug dealer. She arranges meets out of that bar. And, you know, you're being used by her mm-hmm. somehow. Don't trust her. Just write it down. Make You write everything else down. Yeah, write this yeah, down. Write down. Do not trust her. And so Leonard writes it down on the back of Natalie's photo. Like, do not trust mm-hmm. her. But the difference this time is that he, did you notice the difference? No. What are you talking about? When he writes, don't trust Natalie on the back of the photo, he doesn't write it in the same handwriting. That's right. He does. Yes. Yeah, so like he's just like cursive or something instead. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, did, I did notice that. Sorry, it took me a second. No, that's, that's OK. Yeah. And the reasoning on this, which makes sense to me that I've heard, is that he did that as a visual cue to himself not to trust his own handwriting. Yeah, because I think this is the only instance where you get someone telling him to write something down as opposed to him doing it of his own volition. So, yep. yeah, that was the reason, too, that he wanted to do it. And so Teddy, you know, keeps going at it. Like people may come after you, Leonard, like after her boyfriend disappears, people may come after you. Someone always pays, I think is how Teddy phrases it. Leonard wonders, hey, hey, Teddy, are you maybe you're afraid that Natalie is using you? It's Leonard trying to figure out what's happening in this moment, make sense of it to himself. But Teddy's thing is just write it down. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get the writing of don't trust her on the back of Natalie's photo. Also invites Leonard to maybe think about where do you think you got this suit and this nice car you're driving? Uh Leonard's like, oh, well, I was insurance. We were well covered. And he goes, oh, so in your grief, you wandered into a Jaguar dealership. (laughs) (laughs) And he gives him a line, which there's going to be a version of this that comes later. But I like the phrasing of this is you are not who you were. 
you are who you are now and you have no idea who that is. Mm-hmm. It's some version of that, which very I think- Very existential, yeah. Very existential, but I think really places Leonard's situation correctly mm-hmm. at that moment. Teddy checks out, gets out of the car, and then Leonard now has a chance to uh, look at both photos, both Teddy's and Natalie's photos next to each other. So Natalie's is marked with the newly do not trust her in the different handwriting. Teddy's is marked don't believe his lies side by side. And the, tr- and the handwriting that Leonard knows is yep. his trustworthy one. And so holding these suckers side by side looking, okay, which one of these is correct? One of them has to be correct. He chooses to scratch out what he's just written about Natalie. Mm-hmm. He does trust her. Because it, you should not believe Teddy's lies. You, you should not the trustworthy believe. handwriting. Exactly. We've <laughs> seen don't trust his lies. We've seen that from the very beginning of the movie. And of course, of course, we are going to pick back up at the hotel, probably in black and white, and we'll probably do it right after this. Hey, have you listened to the Art Curious podcast? Have you read the book? Have you watched the YouTube channel? No? I just, what are you doing with your life? Art Curious is a universe of content about all things unusual in art. It's the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful. It's hosted by the lovely and talented Jennifer Dassel. That's my wife. And it's the most bingeable content around. Is the Mona Lisa a fake? Was Vincent Van Gogh murdered? Was Donald Duck responsible for beating the Nazis? And what was the deal with Andy Warhol? Like, really, what was the deal? Listen, read, and watch fascinating stories like these and more when you subscribe today to Art Curious. Visit artcuriousmedia.com for more. Art Curious. Listen, read, watch. Art. Hey, it's Subgenre. We are talking Memento here in the third episode of our third season with Alan Mall. Alan, we are moving toward a conclusion. The drain is right there and I'm <laughs> circling around it. That's not a good metaphor. It's really not a great metaphor. <laughs> We're going down the drain. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. It would fit better for season one with the submarine <laughs> flicks. I just, yeah, my, I run out of content at about the hour mark, so I should have told Josh <laughs> that ahead of time. Yeah, the hour mark was long ago. <laughs> When we left off, we were with Leonard. Leonard had been talking to Teddy out in this car outside of Natalie's place. And Teddy is saying, don't trust Natalie. And Leonard has a picture that says, don't trust Teddy. And Leonard had decided that he was going to trust Natalie and was heading off to the motel. Now, I realize once we get back into this, I should have just done this next scene before we went to the break because it really is a cliffhanger sort of a scene, which is our jump back to black and white with Leonard on the phone again talking about Mrs. Jenkins. Leonard is still on the phone. He's saying that, like, Mrs. Jenkins never should have given him the responsibility that she did to decide whether or not her husband was faking and everything else. Like, that was what she wanted. He couldn't legally say anything. So he's trying his best to avoid any kind of responsibility there. You know, and as he's insisting that he finally pulls off the bandage that's been covering the tattoo on his arm and the tattoo says never answer the phone and then we get this wonderful music cue Leonard look like has this look of shock and then asks the person on the phone who is this click and click yeah oh that's great that's a wonderful moment in building suspense on this thing because 
all this time, it's been this question of, okay, who is he talking to? We ha- we're we certain that he knows this person that he's talking to because he's been talking to them the whole thing and then realize that he never should have been talking to them in the first place. Yeah, like he was so adamantly against the phone in the past that he had a tattoo placed on his body telling him not to talk on the phone. <laughs> and here he is. He didn't know and he fell into that trap. He is in danger. But we're going to have to wait on the danger because we need to go back a little further. Yep. So we're back in Natalie's house in color. Leonard is frantically looking around for a pen, something to write down a note because he has to remember something. We don't know what it is. But he doesn't get there in time enough before Natalie shows up at home. And Natalie is in bad shape, right? So she, in I think in previous scenes, we had seen her with this, you know, split lip and other things. It's fresh Mm -hmm. here when she walks through the door. Whatever has happened has just happened and apparently it's something that's been done by Dodd. She comes in and Leonard says like, who did this to you? So she goes, goes, who Leonard? It was Dodd. I went to go see Dodd because you told me to go see Dodd and this is the result of it. Mm -hmm. He's not happy that this has happened to Natalie. She says that she went to Dodd, told Dodd, who apparently was looking for his money from drugs, that she didn't have his money or his drugs, that Dodd took it out on her And she thinks that maybe Teddy took them. So we don't know how this whole relationship works, but we know now that she's drawing Teddy into this web of whatever had happened to her that Leonard has asked her to go take care of, apparently. Yeah. And Leonard, seeing Natalie as a damsel in distress, is like, I'm going to find Dodd, maybe give him some bruises of his own, you know, to get rid of him for Natalie. (laughs) And Natalie assures him, don't worry, Dodd's going to find you. Leonard's like, why? Why would Dodd find me? And Natalie says, well, I had to tell him something. He was getting rough. Yeah. So I told him what your car looks like. And that's why if you drive around, he'll probably find you. Which is, of course, is going to lead us to the moment of the flashing lights and the car following him and the gun chase that that happens later. But Leonard heads out the door, goes to his car. And this is that same moment where Teddy's waiting for him out of the car. Yeah. Yeah. So we flash back to the phone ringing in the hotel in black and white. That's it. And Leonard, knowing that he has a tattoo that says never answer the phone, does not answer it. He, In fact, he calls the front desk and says, I don't want any calls. So don't put any calls through to me. Hold all my calls. And Bird at the front desk is like, copy that. No problem. Not going to send you any calls. In flashback, back to color. And we're back to Natalie's earlier. Yes. This is previous to him looking for the pen. So Mm -hmm. if we remember, that was the last time we saw him in Natalie. Natalie's, he was looking for a pen for some reason. So at Natalie's, she shows up worried about Dodd, unbeaten up. She's looking fine. This is fine. Yeah. Yeah. And thinks that Dodd took Jimmy's money. Mm -hmm. But he thinks, I'm sorry, Dodd thinks that she took Jimmy's money, but she claims that she didn't. But she didn't. Yes. Yeah. And then so Leonard asked more about it. Jimmy went to meet Teddy and then he took a lot of money with him and he didn't come back is what Natalie says. Mm -hmm. She tells him, tells Leonard, stop protecting Teddy. Don't protect Teddy. Instead, what you need to do is you need to get your butt up and go kill Dodd. Kill Dodd. I'll pay you. And Leonard has right. this reaction that every other normal person would. Like, I won't kill someone for money. It's like, you know, and she starts asking, like, what would you kill for? You'll kill for love. Like, you'll kill to get revenge for your, uh, you know, for your wife's uh, murder. And she really, really, really wants Dodd killed. Mm-hmm. And so much so that this new side of Natalie that we haven't been privy to before comes out. Whereas Natalie before was the friend. She was the one who, according to the photo, would help him because she's lost somebody. Natalie turns and 
straight up uh, starts provoking Leonard. Mm -hmm. And I think we sort of understand where this is going, but it takes a minute to get there. Yes. So yeah, it begins antagonizing him, saying like, you know, oh, I could like tell you whatever I want and you wouldn't remember it because your memory doesn't work. And Leonard tries to calm her down, tells her to stop it. She keeps leaning in, like, you know, provokes him, calls him a freak, you sad freak, you can't do any. And like Leonard finally like gets mad, grabs her by the face and pushes her away. And then just to make sure that Leonard's nice and amped up, she basically says that one cause of memory loss is venereal disease. So perhaps your wife caught an STD and that's the reason why you've got that because she's such a f***ing whore. I blink, blink, blink. And so like Leonard responds with violence, socks Natalie in the face out of anger. And this is how then we discover Natalie got that split lip in the first place Mm -hmm. is not from going to see Dodd. It's because Leonard gave it to her Mm -hmm. and Leonard gave it to her because she provoked him into it on purpose, even tells him flat out, I'm going to use you and I'm you're not even going to remember it. I'm going to use you. And she understands that she can manipulate Leonard for whatever her purposes are, tell him flat out, and Leonard's not going to remember it. The best part about this is immediately before she begins this tirade, you see her grabbing all of the pens and things that she has in the living room and putting them out of sight so someone who doesn't know her house wouldn't be able to find them. And you don't know why she's doing this until she provokes this tirade, tells him that she's going to use him and he won't remember it, and then leaves the house, which leads us to Leonard frantically trying to find something to write down that Natalie is trying to betray him. Which explains the last scene that we saw him in. And we get a bit more out of that scene than we got before, which is we see Natalie sitting out in her car, just waiting long enough for the memory to fade from Leonard so that she can come back in and say, hey, Dodd, beat me up. You need to go kill him. Yes. That's smart. That's It's smart writing. It's a smart thing for a character to do. And it is the whole moment of flat out using his disability against him and saying, I'm going to do this and there's nothing that you can do about it. It's fun. Is that the wrong word for it? It's a fun moment. Well, it's the sort of thing that actors dream of because you get so many emotional beats to play in the scene. There's like the consoling, there's the pleading, there's the anger, there's the fury. And so I wouldn't be shocked if when they were like getting, uh, making sure Guy Pierce and Carrie Ann Moss were right for these roles, that this was the one they had them read together. Yeah. The scene too, in in a strange way, reminds me of a moment from, I don't know if you've ever seen, there was an old movie from 71 called Billy Jack. Remember Billy Jack? Oh gosh, who was in that movie? It was uh, Tom Laughlin was was in that movie and he played this guy who knew martial arts and kind of the whole time. It was sort of like an early, sort of like First Blood, but not really. But there's a line in it where the bad sheriff or the whoever the authority figure is in town is like antagonizing Billy Jack and Billy Jack is standing toe to toe with him and says and points at his own foot and goes, I'm going to take this foot and I'm going to put it right here and points to the guy's face and says, and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. It reminds me of that moment with him telling him, here's how I'm going to use you and you can't stop it. Calling his shot. (laughs) Yeah, it's calling a shot. That's exactly what it is. That's beautiful. So, okay, that explains the moment of having to look for pens. Natalie comes back in, says, Dodd beat me up. You need to go kill him. Okay. Back to the hotel. Yeah. Black and white again. Leonard is listening through the wall with a glass, tr- like trying to like, you know, hear what's going on in the room next to him. There's a knock at the door. It's Bert. So he says, oh, hey, Lenny, I know you said you didn't want any calls, but there's a the guy on the phone. He says this is a cop. And Leonard says, I don't care if it's a cop. I want to see people in person. Not so good on the phone. I'm not great on the phone. And the listening of the glass of the room next door, is that from the paranoia from before? Okay. Yeah. 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 Someone else spying on me that way, too. 
back up before everything that happens with Natalie. This is Leonard and Natalie then first arriving at Natalie's house. Mm -hmm. And he presents her with his life's work, this police file and everything that he's been looking for. With all the annotations and all the notes and everything else. And she asks him why the police aren't looking for the killer since Leonard has all these notes. And Leonard says, well, the cops don't think he exists. And so Leonard begins to recall his memory of the murder. Which is waking up in the middle of the night hearing a scuffle happening he grabs a pistol which uh, he has in the bedside drawer or whatever and goes down the hall kicks open a bathroom door to find somebody on top of his wife strangling her to death she's in wrapped in a shower curtain i think and he's he's strangling her to death and he shoots the strangler kills that guy but doesn't realize that there is another criminal in the room who clocks him mm-hmm and knocks him out and leaves him to lay there kind of face to face with his dying wife. That's what he remembers. Yes. And you get this very harrowing shot of like the blood from Leonard's head wound leaking out as he's like looking at his wife, his dying wife in the eye as the whole thing is happening. It's a great shot. And Leonard's theory is that John G was the person who clocked him over the head and that John G then staged everything to make it look like this one guy had done it yeah. to cover his own tracks to be able to get out of there. And that's why Leonard's mission is to find John G. Yeah. So we're then um, we're back with like Leonard explaining this to uh, to Natalie. She tells him he can stay a couple of days that that will help him in this quest of his. So, so he takes and then takes Natalie's photo with the Polaroids. This is where the Natalie picture shows up. And then as she leaves, so he can write her name on it so yep. he can remember who she is. Then while watching TV, he sees his semi Jenkins tattoo and then Natalie rushes back in and begins against hiding the pins because someone's coming, she says. Right. We're back at the scene that we left off. Starting off that whole sequence, right. Phone is ringing back at the hotel in black and white. An envelope gets slipped under the door and on the front of the envelope is just written, take my call. Mm -hmm. So we are assuming that this is the quote unquote cop um, that was trying to call him earlier and the phone is ringing. And so Leonard opens the envelope to find a photo. A shirtless picture of himself deliriously happy and pointing to a blank spot on his chest. So whoever this person is that's been calling him has this like very strange photo of Leonard in a making a facial expression. He doesn't make much in this movie, which is just delirious joy. And that is, again, one of these short moments where things are starting to compress themselves. This is a short moment where we get that and go, what? And we move on. Mm -hmm. Where we move to is what happens prior to Leonard and Natalie having gone to her place. Back to color. Then we're at the bar and a smiling Natalie gives Leonard a beer and says, hey, it's on the house. He says, thank you and takes a drink. And then random people at the bar begin snickering and laughing at him. And this confirms for her somehow you really do have that condition that the cop was telling me about. I think it's what she says to him and then very quickly takes the beer away from him and says, let me get you a fresh one. This one looks a little dusty. This one looks a little dusty, right? We assume that there's been some sort of test played on him, but we are not quite sure what that is at this point. Isn't it she asks him in that scene? What, what is the last thing you do remember? My wife. She goes, that's sweet. He goes, dying. My wife dying. <laughs> yeah, okay, never mind. Not sweet. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And that's when she takes his drink away to get him another. Mm-hmm. So Leonard answers the phone in his hotel. Go back to Bach and White, answering the phone in the hotel. Because he's gotten the envelope yes. with the picture. Mm-hmm. Starts to ask whoever this is on the other end of the line, why are you calling me? And the person, whatever their response is, Leonard says, nobody should believe any person in my condition. I, Leonard, didn't even believe Sammy. I didn't believe Sammy. So we're tying together whoever this is on the phone and what they think of Leonard. 
with what Leonard thinks of Sammy. Mm-hmm. There's some threads being put together there. Yes, yes. Okay. Back to color. So Leonard is in his car. He reads the back of a bar coaster, come by after Natalie, you know, that he has taken out of the pocket of his jacket. He enters the bar and he orders a beer. Natalie gets quite offended by this. He says, obviously we've met before. I have a coaster, but I don't know who you are. He says, yeah, I found this coaster in my pocket. I have a condition. Have I told you about my condition? But it clicks for her that her boyfriend, who she gives us his full name now, Jimmy Grants, mm-hmm. told her that there was this memory guy. Leonard doesn't know Jimmy Grants. But she says a cop came by earlier also mentioning a guy who can't remember things. And she wants to know, is it Teddy that sent Leonard? And by the way, what happened to Jimmy? So naturally, Leonard not being able to make memories, doesn't have any idea how to answer any of the questions she has just asked him. He says, I just came here because of this note on the coaster that I found in my pocket. She kind of gives him this eyebrow raise, like your pocket. Uh-huh. You know, and this implies that the suit he's wearing might not be his suit. But, you know, then at this point, she begins to ask like uh, people at the bar, including this older gentleman, to spit in a mug. Then she asks Leonard if he's willing to spit in a mug in order to uh, win a bar bet. Uh-huh. And he reluctantly does so. Then she does the same, mixes it up, waits an appropriate amount of time and then brings it to his table, which we recognize as the drink that she had brought earlier that she said was dusty and was taking away for him. Yeah, this is the on the house drink. Yeah. So he ended up drinking the beer full of spit that he both he and she had spit into. Yes. Yes. So that was the test that Natalie gave him and he passed it, unfortunately for him. We're back on the phone. Black and white again. Yeah. Talking to the police that mm-hmm. what we've been told is the, the policeman on the phone. Yes. And we're going to get a little bit of a longer bit here because this is where Leonard is going to tell this longer tale about Sammy Jenkins. We're going to get some of the significance here of the Sammy Jenkins story. Mm-hmm. And it starts with Sammy's wife coming to see Leonard in his office, which is what we had been privy to before. Sammy's wife is in the office. Like um, Leonard's insisting, like, you know, Sammy's condition is psychological. The wife goes home. She goes home and decides to test him kind of similar to what the insurance company had done to test him whether or not he's faking or or whether it's psychological. Yeah. And it's this really harrowing scene because we know she's a diabetic from earlier scenes in the movie. But like she realizes like, okay, well, if he's faking and he really loves me, he will stop himself from giving me too many insulin shots in short succession, even though I keep winding the clock back and trying to deceive him because if he's faking, then like surely he cares about me enough to not put me into like, you know, diabetic shock by doing this. And it's this really harrowing scene where you just watch like her heart being broken while her body is also shutting down and she's getting too much insulin. And then when Sammy sees his wife is dying, is panicked, trying to like revive her, doesn't know what happened, but he was the one responsible for it because he is being asked to give her the insulin shot over and over again in the story that Leonard is telling. And it's seems at some point that she it starts out as a test which he fails or pass. I don't know how you say that, but he obviously does have an impairment, Mm -hmm. which overfills her bucket of guilt, maybe that she had been testing him and being mean to him and not believing him and all of these things, which so in the middle of this test, it turns into her kind of punishment to herself for having done that of encouraging him to kill her. Yeah. He obviously, you know, from moment to moment, doesn't know what he's doing, including after he discovers her dead, because, you know, not, not that long afterwards, we see him in a mental hospital or something akin to it with the explanation of, you know, he doesn't remember that she's dead. He's just there. And Leonard sort of saying, you know, you watch the doctors pass and you you kind of learn when you have that condition to just fake it, which is now what he thinks Sammy 
was doing when he went to go visit him that time when he thought he saw recognition. And there's such a confluence of their both conditions that there's a very nice like little cut here, like right before the scene cuts away from the mental hospital, you get to see uh, Leonard sitting in the chair where Sammy was sitting. Like there's this half a second beat of that happening. So yeah, like their stories are getting conflated. Yeah, I had to go back and rewatch that scene because it's just a millisecond. Oh, that it's it like passes. a couple frames basically, just enough for your eyes to be like, wait, I saw Guy Pierce there. But it's, yeah, it's Leonard sitting in the chair where where Sammy was, and then it switches back to Sammy, and it's like, mm-hmm. yeah. That's that's pretty interesting stuff. And we end that particular scene with, again, another cliffhanger. Leonard saying to the cop on the phone, what drug dealer? Which is where we're going to get the crossing out of access to drugs to become drug dealer on his tattoo later. Back to color and the present-ish. So Leonard, like, you know, squeals on the brakes in his car to park in front of a tattoo shop where he's going to get Fact 6, the car license plate, tattooed on his leg by a professional so it'll look a little bit better than all of the other ones that he's done himself with ballpoint pen ink. And she is trying the tattooist, played by Marianne Müller-Lyle. That's a German, very, very German Oh, man, I can't even say that one. Müller-Lyle. Müller-Lyle. And, of course, who arrives right in the middle of her doing this tattoo to Leonard? Teddy. Of course he Teddy does. Teddy has a Leonard radar that will just tell him wherever he goes. I wouldn't be surprised if he had one of those trackers, like, embedded in him somewhere. <laughs> Teddy is always there wherever Leonard He's low-jacked. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the tattooist is like, you, you can't be in here. Like, get out. She's trying to get him to get out. Leonard, I think, is subtly covering what's being tattooed on him because, as we find out pretty soon, it is Teddy's license plate number that is the tattoo that's being tattooed onto his leg as fact six. After like, they are able to have a conversation, Teddy is deeply upset that Leonard is even still around. He says, you're not safe here. The cops are looking for you. So Teddy says, you need to get a new identity. So he shoves like a bunch of clothes in Leonard's arms and says, you need to get a new car too. You know, it's like, look, the one you're wanting to watch out for, there's a bad cop. You know, he's the one that keeps calling you up on the phone. Yep. He slides stuff under your door if you don't answer it. So it clicks for us like, oh, this is the bad cop that's been calling him. You and, know. and the cop who's been saying that this John G that Leonard is looking looking for is a local drug dealer. Teddy says the drug dealer is Jimmy Grants. Jimmy G, John G, that's your guy. And Leonard doesn't remember immediately who that is. Of course he doesn't. You know, so but like all the audience knows, like, oh, Jimmy Grants, it's Natalie's boyfriend, da, 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 da. So we, we have heard this name before, but the cop wants to know how Grants' operation works, and he has a score in mind. So there's a certain amount of money and drugs that are, like, waiting to be found here. And, of course, Leonard is very curious about Teddy. How do you know all of this? And Teddy says, ah, I'm a snitch. Mm-hmm. I've been a snitch. You know, he asks me for information. I give it to them. Sometimes he throws me, you know, a bone here and there, and, and this is one of those times I'm trying to make a little money, if the cop knew that uh, Teddy was helping Leonard, uh, he'd kill Teddy. Yeah. And so he says, look, we got to get you out of here. So he gives Leonard the new clothes. And while Leonard is changing into those new clothes, he's checking Teddy's photo. The one see, that says, see what he knows about this guy. And of course, the note he finds is don't believe his lies. Right. And he also checks the coaster from Natalie, the one that says come by after Natalie. And he also finds a third thing, which we haven't seen really to this point, which is a Polaroid, yes, but a nearly burned up Polaroid, all shriveled up with only one thing visible. Yeah, you can just see like a bit of shoulder and a bare arm in this one. And so it's nothing really to make out here. But he knows this. He knows that he can't trust Teddy. And he knows that the whole cop thing is maybe a little sketch, maybe not. Yeah. And so what does he do? He escapes out the window of the tattoo parlor to head off on his own mission. Yeah, wearing the clothes he was wearing in the first place. Yes. So where does he go? Well, he had the note, the coaster that said, come by after Natalie. So he goes to find Natalie. And so he's at Ferdy's bar. He finds Natalie. She calls him Jimmy when he pulls up in the Jaguar. 
and then realizes that this is not Jimmy once Leonard rolls down his window. Which then implies to us that Leonard is wearing Jimmy's clothes, that Leonard is driving Jimmy's car. car. But we don't know how. We don't know how. We don't know how that happened. Back to the hotel in black and white. Of course. Leonard's on the phone, as he always is in these scenes. He finds out Jimmy deals drugs from the bar, from Ferdy's bar that we've been talking about, and that's where they can catch Jimmy. So the officer says on the phone he'll be waiting for Leonard in the motel lobby. Leonard gathers all of his files and his map, folds up all of his belongings. He heads downstairs. And who is at the front desk but... Guess. Teddy. Teddy. Who Leonard... Because of the impression that was left on the phone, Leonard identifies as Officer Gamble. Officer Gamble, it's it's me, Leonard, to which Teddy agrees. Yes. Yep, I'm Officer Gamble. Mm-hmm. Let's go. And tries to shuffle him out of there before Bert behind the counter can kind of see what's going on. Leonard, of course, immediately wants to take Teddy's photo here so he can remember who he is. But Teddy says, oh, don't do it in front of the motel sign, insisting on going against the truck there. Yeah, kind of a less identifiable pose. Yes, yes. Don't write my name on the phone. Yeah, yeah don't uh, write. On the photo. No, I'm, I'm undercover. Don't write Officer Gamble on the photo uh just teddy and then gives him some directions and says here is where jimmy is headed and go take care of this guy and oh by the way make him beg make him beg yeah make this guy pay for what he did so here is where one of our circles comes back around because leonard is headed in this truck that has been in the parking lot of the motel he has taken this truck out to this abandoned building that we saw at the beginning of the film. This, we start to realize, is the truck where we saw those bullets in the cab. And this is when we go from black and white to color, right? Correct. Yes, so showing us that we're no longer in flashback mode, we're now back into a present memory. Exactly. And one small note about that building. Where they were originally going to shoot this scene was some train company or something, railroad offices. And it was like this Spanish style building. And this is where they were going to shoot. Well, apparently a day or two before they were supposed to shoot the scene there, the railroad company moved in a whole bunch of train cars (laughs) and put them like where exactly where they would be in the shot and they weren't going to be moved. And so they had to scramble at the last minute to go find this other abandoned spot to shoot. The problem being that the interiors, which were shot on a set, had already been built. And so they had to sort of fake around what they had built, the interiors of this. So, yeah. Yeah, The joys of shooting some things on location, some (laughs) things not. Giant train cars, you got to look for them. Yep, yep. So he's he's at this building. He takes a tire iron with him as a weapon into this building because Mm -hmm. he, as far as he knows, an armed Jimmy is going to be inside. And... As soon as Leonard is inside this place, he does see Jimmy pull up. Yeah. So Jimmy pulls up in the Jag. In the Jag. Yeah. That we we have been watching Leonard drive around the entire movie and wearing like the white suit and blue shirt that Leonard has been wearing the entire movie. Jimmy comes up and comes out and and finds Leonard and says, oh, he was like, oh, is Teddy here? He's asking, trying to find Teddy. And ask if uh, uh, Leonard asked Jimmy if he remembers him. Yeah, he does. He He says like, oh, of course I remember you, memory man. So he not only like remembers it, but he knows what Leonard's condition is. Leonard has had that conversation with him before and then Leonard like proceeds to take the tire iron and crack Jimmy over the head with it he hits him hard enough to knock him down mm-hmm. to which Jimmy's like what the hell man like what are you what are you doing tells Jimmy to strip 
And so this is where he gets the suit. Why am I having to take off my pants and my shirt? I don't want to get blood on them is yes. the response from Leonard. Yeah. Yeah. And so Jimmy realizes what's happening here and says, and like, you know, begins to threaten uh, Leonard says like, my associates are not people you want to mess with. It's like, and then begging for his life, Jimmy says, I have $200,000 in the trunk of my car. Leonard, of course, says, I don't want your money. I want my life back. And the life back triggers kind of like a flashback of his wife being strangled. Leonard goes and strangles Jimmy, mm -hmm. right, as all of this is happening. And then once he's choked him out, then he takes a photo of Jimmy lying dead on the ground. This is the photo that we're going to see later at Natalie's house and then puts on his clothes. Yeah. And then as he's dragging Jimmy's body to the basement, he thinks Jimmy wakes up enough to say Sammy, which yeah. makes him realize, like, I might have talked to this guy. He might know more about my life. Why would I have told John G, James G about Sammy Jenkins that he was a murderer? He tells everybody he ever has any extended conversation with about Sammy Jenkins. So that doesn't make sense to him. He doesn't have time to sit and mull over it too long because outside, of course, Teddy has now pulled yeah, up. Yeah. And so Leonard checks Teddy's photo. And at this point in the narrative, it does not say, don't believe his lies. He just this knows is this pre is Teddy. That. Yeah, he this has taken a picture and written his name down. So yeah, Leonard is now panicking. What has he done? Has he killed the wrong guy? He doesn't know. He rushes outside acting like he doesn't know Teddy and asks for help. This is like, there's a man inside. He's hurt bad. Teddy flashes a badge like he's a cop. Hey, I'm, I'm here to help. And as Teddy then bends over to check on Jimmy, Leonard cracks him in the head yes. and knocks him out and then checks his badge and realizes, oh, he is a cop. He actually is a cop. He was telling the truth about that one. So Teddy now says, Leonard, Jimmy is John G., the one who raped and killed your wife. Leonard doesn't think that Jimmy's the guy because it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. So Leonard wants to know, like, you know, why did Jimmy bring $200,000 in the trunk of his car? He was telling me about that for a drug deal, says Teddy. It's like, you know, I thought we'd make a, make a little money on the side while you were getting your revenge. And proceeds to explain that, hey, OK, so, you know, that hotel you're staying in, the motel, Jimmy dealt out of there. And it was Bert who would give him info. The guy at the front desk would give him info about people. And he knew about Sammy Jenkins because Leonard tells everybody about Sammy Jenkins. Yeah. That's why he knew about it. It wasn't anything special. But Leonard sort of left these details yeah. out. Yeah, so it's like, there's also parts of your story, Lenny, that you're not telling everybody. Like, and Leonard's like, like what? And then Teddy says, like your wife surviving the assault? Like your wife not believing your condition? The insulin? I mean, like, Lenny, your wife was a diabetic. And then we realized that, like, that, yeah. the story that he thought was Sammy Jenkins' story. And Leonard fights it. Leonard, yes. says, Leonard says, that wasn't me. That was Sammy. You're talking about a different person thinking that Teddy is trying to confuse him. And Teddy says, no, it wasn't. It's like Sammy Jenkins was a con man. He didn't have a wife. Right. No wife. Yeah. It was Leonard's wife who had the diabetes. It was Leonard who gave her the shots. Leonard, of course, refuses to believe this. He can't believe that he would kill his own wife. He knows his own wife. He knows how things happen. This isn't how they happen. Yeah. And while Leonard is like panicking and going through this like existential crisis, Teddy's yeah. like checking out Jimmy's designer shoes and seeing how they would, they're about the same size that he would wear. Oh, nice. I should take these. Yeah. And I, for a minute, I was I was trying to figure out was there something deeper to that or was it just like oh he liked the shoes and he was going to take I them? think it just liked the shoes yeah yeah okay <laughs> what kind great. of person this is and so Leonard finds in his mind the fact that he's holding on to and says Jimmy was not the guy mm -hmm. but Teddy responds to it kind of unexpectedly yeah. He says, it doesn't matter. You got your revenge, right? What does it matter? And then Leonard, of course, insists, it does matter. I, I want to know that I got the right person. I will know. And kind of exasperated, Teddy says to him, you know, I thought that would be true, too. 
when I started trying to help you find this guy, whatever it was. We found the real John G a year ago. Yeah, and you killed him. And you still don't know that you did it. It, you, You don't know when it's the right time. You've just been telling yourself that. And so Ted gives us more backstory. He was the cop assigned to like Leonard's wife's case. He thought Leonard deserved revenge. They found the guy. Leonard killed him, but he didn't remember. So Teddy starts helping him try to find the guy that Leonard literally has already killed. Yeah. So Teddy's been helping him all of this time basically live out this recurring fantasy of trying to find the person who killed his wife. It's, you know, it's kind of the fugitive, right? Mm-hmm. To some degree. But he just he has no way to remember what he has done. And so after a while, sort of like Bert at the hotel, sort of like Natalie, Teddy has decided, well, I can guess I can just sort of use this to my advantage if he's not going to remember anyway. And basically just has him kill people who are convenient, who they have framed up to be John G. Yeah. Because there are John G's everywhere, he says. <laughs> I'm a John G. I'm says. a John G. Right. And like, I think this is also is when he shows him the photo of him looking deliriously happy. Like, I took this photo of you after you killed the first John G. You were so happy. And you almost get the idea in the photo. The blank spot on his chest was a new tattoo that he was going to get to tell himself, oh, good, you did it. A tattoo that, of course, he never got because we've been trapped in this loop of doing it over and over again. And I think I heard that somewhere in this narrative, and maybe it's the part where he is, goodness, I can't remember. There is some part in this narrative where that spot on his chest is filled in and it says, I did it. Oh, I'll have to go back and look and see where in the narrative that falls. And it may be when he wakes up in the apartment and I don't don't know. Okay, But apparently that exists. And so that explains that blank spot. Interesting stuff. That's great. And then one of the best lines is that like, you know, it's like when he's, he's saying like, Lenny, you're not a killer. That's why you're so good at it. And this guy that you've been chasing, John G, this entire time, there is no John G. You killed a guy who you thought was John G, but it was two random junkies, really, mm-hmm. is what it was. And you've built John G, or we've built John G, into this bigger thing. He's Kaiser Soze, yeah. you know, and you've been chasing him, and I've been helping you do that, and here's where we are, and we're going to make a little money. Doesn't that sound great? Mm-hmm. But it, this whole bunch of information is really just kind of too much for Leonard at this moment. Leonard doesn't want to know the truth that he is the one who created his own puzzle world to live in that he can never get out of. And and Teddy is the person who's helping him do it. Leonard raises the gun to kill Teddy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is the moment where you think, oh, this is where it's going to happen. And Teddy knocks the gun away. Pushes the gun away and says, you're not a killer, Lenny. Right. They're right. And that's That's why you're so good at it. That's why you're so good at it. So the moment that we thought was coming didn't come right then when he shot Teddy. Mm -hmm. What happens next? They go outside. Leonard takes Teddy's keys away from him and throws them away so that Teddy can't follow him wherever Leonard is going to go. He empties the bullets from the gun onto the seat of the truck. So this is where we get those bullets on the seat of the truck. Yep. And then this is the moment where he turns over Teddy's photos and writes for the first time, don't believe his lies. Mm -hmm. And uh, burns the photos of Jimmy's body and the deliriously happy photo of himself. So that way, like the mystery will still persist, you know, and then writes down like tattoo Teddy's license plate because you realize like he is now leaning fully into this like spiral and saying, well, you know, it's like, you're a John G. I'm going to give myself my meaning by finding and killing you. So... And the thing that's amazing about this is Leonard, he's self-conscious enough to realize, like, I can't just say on the note, kill Teddy. 
he's the one. I need to give myself a mystery to solve here so it will feel me. Maybe this time it will feel meaningful that I have done it. This is where my brain starts to come undone in putting together the timeline of how these things actually happen so that the shooting of Teddy takes place well after this moment, right? Because this is the first moment essentially of putting Teddy into the position of being the person he's chasing. Right. So this is what kicks off the narrative for the rest of the movie, mm-hmm. which will eventually end up with him killing Teddy. Yeah. I gotcha. I'm with you somewhat. All right. Yeah. <laughs> but that burn photo, that's the burn photo that's going to show up in his pocket later where we just see the one arm and all of that kind of stuff. But you're right. He makes this conscious decision to lie to himself to go forward because that's what he has to live for. Otherwise, he can't remember anything. He's got no life. This is what he is going to live for. Yeah. So he takes Jimmy's car, the Jag, which is what we'll see him driving around in. He's already wearing the suit. He takes the gun. And as he is getting ready to leave, he opens the trunk of the Jag and inside is $200,000, which Teddy sees and for the rest of the movie, then, we'll be trying to get oh, that car. Oh, that's why he wanted the car so bad. Okay, yeah. yeah. When I saw that at the end, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's go back and rewatch those scenes. But Leonard is able to leave right then, leaving Teddy behind so that Teddy has to go catch up with him later. And that's how we kick off the rest of everything that's going to happen. Yep. And our epilogue is Leonard driving away, thinking to himself, it's like, I have to believe my life has meaning. The world is still there when I close my eyes. And then we get this moment of him closing his eyes, imagining his wife, seeing the tattoos on his body, you know, it's like in everything that he's done, like in this montage of, you know, attempted sentiment and meaning. And then he sees the tattoo parlor where he will get the license plate tattooed on his leg, screeches to a halt in front of it. And we get the final line of the movie. Now, where was I? And the loop begins again. Yes. And that is Memento. As convoluted as we could make it for every listener to this, all three of you, we hope that this has at least been enlightening to your experience and that you saw the movie before you listened to this, because otherwise now, what's the point? Huzzah. Okay, man. I think we are uh, safe to move into wrapping everything up here with what we call last looks last looks I hate that so much. I don't know why I keep using this. I mean, now it's part of the podcast. It's part of the podcast. Um, Let's start with the ending. What do you think of the ending? I love it. Because again, the whole thing, it's a very existential story of just like, how do we find meaning in the things that we do? And like, is our ability to remember things the only thing saving us from these kinds of like severed episodes that Leonard is living? And the movie kind of says, yes, like if you cannot actively record and like, you know, look back on the moments in your life, you are incapable of acting outside of like just pure instinct of whatever you're in. You'd be stuck in that kind of cycle. And I love that like Leonard realizes that and like also realizes that's the only thing giving his life meaning. So she chooses to go back into it. I think the addition of that line at the end of now, where was I is really what ties everything together for me because it goes back to Leonard's intentional placing of himself into this situation, which is the information that we've been denied the entire movie. And I really, really like having that at the end because it does make it feel like, you know, you could now go back to the beginning of the movie and watch it again. Yeah. And what I love about this is that like, because they were presented with the end of the story and gradually cycle back to the beginning, you spend much of the beginning of the early parts of the movie thinking to yourself like, oh, well, he caught the guy. Like, you know, it's like we know that this has a quote unquote happy ending because Leonard gets the revenge that he wanted. And what the movie twists so deliciously is like, 
oh, sure, that is an ending to a story. It's like this is the one that like you think that you're getting justice, but the reality of it is it's the only meaning that you're ascribing in your own mind to it. And I'm pretty sure Nolan wrote this in chronological order first and then broke it. Yeah. That's typically how you would do it in mm-hmm. something like this in order for it to make sense. And I'm guessing that this wasn't an exception to that. So there's been some discussion about remaking this film as early as 2018, I think. Somebody's been working on trying to remake this film. Yeah, which I'm rarely a fan of remaking films, especially films as uh, you know solid as this one. Remake the crappy ones, okay. I wonder, though, just looking at what this film is and why we feel like this film works, and I'm assuming we both feel like this film works, is this a film that could work today and still have a, a similar impact? And this is the, like so many movies, the introduction of smartphones would make this movie a lot different because someone in Leonard's condition wouldn't need tattoos. They wouldn't need like, you know, handwritten notes. They would have like their iPhone. They would have all of the stuff in there. And you could still do things with pictures and things like that. But like the physical aspect of like fumbling for the photos and writing your own comments and notes on them, you would have to invent a whole nother motif for it. And so I think like so many movies made in, in the recent past, having smartphones introduced to the whole thing wouldn't make it quite different. This was Nolan's first really widely recognized film. He had films before this. He had shorts and he had a, he had another feature, I think, before this. But this was his first big one that gave us Christopher Nolan oh, as he is today. Totally the breakout movie, yeah. And I have, like I said earlier, I've seen a decent amount of Nolan movies. I haven't seen them all. But I come back to this being my favorite of the Nolan movies that have been made. Maybe with Dark Knight thrown in there as well. He's a good filmmaker. So it's one of those ones where like, you know, even like the worst Christopher Nolan movie is still going to have so many things about it to admire. Yeah, the worst Christopher Nolan movie is Interstellar. Let's just let's just just put that out there now as my opinion. Yeah, yeah. This might be my favorite too. I mean, the prestige is up there. I'm also very like um, Inception is such a like delightfully over the top film. That was also incredible. But I like his stuff when he's forced to work with a smaller budget and a tighter focus because because I think his first love is telling a really good thriller movie. This is with following. It's like he's proven as a filmmaker that given like, you know, a smaller budget, the right cast and the script that he was totally able to make his own before he made it. He can tell you an incredibly compelling, memorable story without needing like all of the high production values that a movie like Inception had where, you know, you don't need fighting guys in Arctic snow and snow gear that are representing like dream defense people or something like that. It's like you get a nice tight story about a guy trying to get revenge and it's really well executed yeah somebody needs to take away nolan's money and send him back out here nolan here's we'll go with inflation he had nine million for this one we'll give him what 30 million yeah and say go make a movie i would watch the hell out of that oh sure (laughs) what a great way to segue into a quiz segment Mm. this is called you can't handle the truth you Can't Handle the Truth is the multiple choice quiz segment here on Subgenre, back by popular demand, and that demand is my own. <laughs> in this, as always, you are going to be answering three multiple choice questions. If you get two of the three correct, you win a prize, which I typically have no way or no desire to give you. And so today you are going to be playing Alan Mall for a complimentary full set of body tattoos <laughs> customized with your own findings over the next 48 hours. (laughs) Beautiful. Are you ready to play? I'm ready. Here we go. Question number one. 
1846, German immigrant Martin Hildebrandt opened the first tattoo parlor in New York City. A few years later, the first electric tattoo machine was patented by Samuel O'Reilly, which was based on which famous inventor's non-tattoo-related device? Was it A, Thomas Saint's sewing machine, B, Ben Franklin's urinary catheter, or C, Thomas Edison's perforating pen? I'm going to go with... C. Thomas Edison's perforating pen. That is correct. That's absolutely right. Thomas Edison created this pen that would perforate paper in his way of duplicating handwriting. And uh, somebody added ink and other things to it and the stuck it in somebody's arm. And born. There you go. And the tattoos were born. That's how we get to Leonard's tattoos. Woo. There's your history. So, yes, you got question number one. Good job. We're going to move on to question number two. Actor Stephen Baldwin, brother of Alec Baldwin, who actually was originally in contention for the role of Leonard alongside a number of other people, including Brad Pitt, sports an odd tattoo on his left shoulder that simply reads the initials HM. What does HM stand for? Is it A, Hannah Montana, B, History in the Making, or C, Harpo Marx? I'm going to go with... B, history in the making. Explain why. I guess C for the last one. Guess <laughs> that's good logic. That's, a, that's sort of Scantron logic. I'm wrong, right? <laughs> yeah, of course it's, you're wrong. No. It's Harper Marks. No, it's Hannah Montana. What the, no! It, it is. In 2008, Stephen Baldwin met Miley Cyrus, who was the star of Hannah Montana at the time, when they were both visiting the White House. And he told her that his daughters were really big fans of Hannah Montana, and so... Miley Cyrus told him, well, look, if you'll get HM tattooed on your body, I will get you a cameo on the series. So he did, and she never gave him the cameo. What? No, never did. Miley, why? He got the tattoo, never got the cameo, and when asked if he would regret the ink in years to come, he replied, never mind years to come, I regret it now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Steven. Oh, man. But you got one so far. You got one question to go. You still got a chance. We will try not to include the HM as part of the tattoos that you're getting. But uh, ready for question number three? I am ready. Okay, here we go. Question number three. Reportedly, in Soviet Russia, some prisoners on death row would get tattoos of Russian icons Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin on their chests. Why? Was it A, the tattoos were believed to bring a halo of protection to communists in good standing? Was it B, to be part of a long-running and now unfortunately forgotten joke? Or C, because it was illegal to shoot at images of those Soviet national leaders? I'm going to go with C, because it was illegal to shoot at images of those leaders. No! Let's try that again. Oh! Yes, that is absolutely correct. No one is quite sure if this is a true reasoning for it, but it is established fact that prisoners back then would get those tattoos on their chest. The rumor was because you weren't allowed to shoot at those things in Soviet Russia or you yourself would be shot. And so they felt like it gave them an aura of protection. And there you go. You got two out of three, Alan Mall. Yes. I want that tattoo sleeve. (laughs) We're going to give you the tattoo sleeve. We're also going to give you this. 
Some Josh. applause. Josh, I have been trying to win these quick segments on everyone that I've That's been That's right. This is the first one you've won, right? I know. And, and in a callback to the uh, Great Train robbery, you gave me an incorrect buzzer instead of the correct sound, which... Uh, I picked second, you out. In the second one, there definitely was one where I'm like, oh, I got it right. No, you actually did not. <laughs> and I pleaded with you to take it back. But you... You've won it on its own merits this time. <clears throat> you did it. You got there. Congratulations. And uh, hopefully you look good in that, those uh, tattoos. I uh, can't wait. That's the music. That means we are into rave, rental, or refund. This is our final thoughts and rating on the movie. Is it a rave? Awesome movie. Amazing. Go tell the friends and family. Is it a rental? Eh, I'll get to it when I get to it. Or is it a refund? So sorry I watched this movie in the first place. Alan Mall, rave, rental, or refund? What say you? Rave. I admired this movie when I first saw it, and watching it again later, seeing how intricately it's plotted and how well acted the whole thing is. And of course, the script is one that you can learn so many lessons for. So rave, no apologies. Watch this movie now. I'm 100% with you. Having not seen this in forever and coming back to it basically fresh, watching it again, it absolutely stands up to what my memory of how good it was was. This meets that and exceeds it. It's an excellent movie and I would watch it again. Now, I might need a break for a little while before I watch it again just to kind of feel that excitement, but it's a great movie. And like I said, I think probably my favorite Nolan movie. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> well, Alan, hey, I appreciate you coming in once again, coming back and triumphing in our quiz segment coming in and talking about this really Inception-like movie mm. with me over and over again. So I do appreciate that. We want everybody to, as always, know what you've got going on, know where to find you, hear about all the exciting stuff. What can you tell us? Well, the big news for me is that my new play, The Weight of Everything We Know, is getting produced by Theater Raleigh from uh, May 31st through June 12th. And I dearly hope this podcast will be out in time for you all to get your tickets and go see it. So if you Google Theater Raleigh Alan Mall, or Theater Raleigh Weight of Everything We Know, you will find a place to get your tickets. It's going to be great. we got some New York actors, an excellent director, and a top-tier production team. So I'm really excited about sharing this play with all of you. It's a romantic comedy about uh, science, communication, and uh, what we do when the unchangeable changes. Well, based on that description, man, I'm glad I had you here for this. You sound like the smart one between the two of us. Hey. This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, playwright Alan Mall. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza featuring Solar Flare. When you can, go now and subscribe to Subgenre on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can find our new episodes, past episodes, and bonus content coming all season long. And you can help promote our show to friends and, I guess, enemies, even if you don't remember them, by leaving your five-star review on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else that'll let you. Trust me when I say it's massive in helping other listeners find us, just like you did. You can also help by financially supporting Subgenre with your donations. Find the link to donate at our website, subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta and Twitter thing, at least for the time being, both at SubgenrePod. More time twisters are on their way, so share us far and wide. But in the meantime, please remember, we're all different, 
So no matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap. Kabunki. Oh. <laughs>